The Agora podcast is covered by a BIPCOT no-gov license. Use and reuse is free and encouraged by anyone except governments or their agents. Find out more at BIPCOT.org. Welcome back to Agora Podcast, another episode of Into the Void. Um, it's been a while, but um, it's glad to be back uh, recording. If anybody's been um, catching up, we've been a little bit absent, but our last episode was our ninth Into the Void, and now I present our, our tenth uh, Into the Void. So it's kind of a cool little milestone, or it's our eleventh actually, but it's our eleventh with Brian anyway. Um, but excited to be here. I'm here with uh, Sek Makora and Dr. Brian Sovereign, of course. Uh, how's everybody doing today? Yeah, rocking and rolling. It's uh, Sam Hain these days, I hear. <laughs> We're getting close. <laughs> um, speaking of Sam Hain, uh, <laughs> so the like proper pronunciation of that is actually Sawween, and I swear to God, I if anybody corrects me, I'm going to look, I'm not, I refuse to pronounce it that way. I'm not going to do that. I don't know. It's not out of any kind of like disrespect or anything, but like I came across the name Sam Hain from Danzig's band in the eighties, you know, like, and I've always heard everyone pronounce it that way. And, uh, apparently the technical way to pronounce that is Sawween, and I'm not, I'm just not going to do that. So for Sam Hain's, uh, is better. It sounds cooler anyway. So um, we're going to go with that. Yeah, I um, like it. <laughs> yeah, let's go with that. Um, do So do either of you guys celebrate anything like that? Um, is there any kind of remembrance of the dead in your uh, spiritual uh, for me, practices? No. No, not at all. Um, but I, I do. I think it's, it seems to be almost universal these days that um, October and this time of year is not so ignoring that aspect of it. Because, no, I don't we don't I don't have that per se, but um, ignoring uh, October and the fall time and the transition of this season in particular, I guess, you know, the end of winter and spring. I mean, everybody loves that. You, you got to get tired of the cold weather after a while, but something about autumn and, and the falling leaves and, and pumpkins and everything. It's just something that I think people cherish now, even more than when I was like a kid. So, uh, no, but I love this time of year for sure. Yeah. I mean, in, in Judaism, there's nothing, there's no, you know, day of the dead. There's no, um, no Halloween, you know, no, nothing along or, or, a, a Sawin. Well, I'll, I'll keep saying same name as well. Um, 
Yeah, nothing along those lines. Uh, in fact, I mean, there, there's pretty much a halakhic, which halakhic just means legal, as in Talmudic ruling in Judaism, uh, that says, you know, no, ha Halloween is not halakhic. And if anything, it's even uh, uh, anti-Torah uh, at the end of the day. Um, I don't really have a problem with it. Um, but I mean, I never celebrated it growing up. Um, I watched everybody else celebrate it. Every once in a while, I got to, you know, dress up uh, for when when there'd be whatever kind of costume contest or something uh, in school, like, you know, like elementary school. Um, but yeah, I never did. And and even, you know, another, another kind of interesting point to get into that, and, and I think I could get into a little bit of perhaps, well, I'll let sex speak in a second here, but... Um, but then maybe I could get into why I don't think there's one in Judaism. But just to, to put a point on it, you know, when my parents converted to Christianity, uh, they converted to Seventh-day Adventism. And uh, Adventists don't celebrate uh, Halloween either. They did a weird thing, though, where they called it Harvest Day. And I think that kind of speaks to Penguin's point where everybody just kind of enjoys this time of year for, I don't know, it's because of Thanksgiving, people kind of really consciously or unconsciously gathering together, getting closer to each other, uh, that there's kind of a warm feeling that comes with that. Uh, yeah, definitely. And, right, right. And so Adventists would do Harvest Day, and they would you basically, like, you'd go to the church, and you'd kind of do Halloween, but you'd usually dress up as, like, biblical characters. And, of course, you know, what do biblical characters even look like, and how did they dress? You're kind of limited uh, as far as that goes. I'd usually choose a Roman soldier. Uh, which probably wasn't the best idea, but, uh, Samson. <laughs> yeah, or Sam, yeah, Samson was, was always an interesting one. I mean, I could go there as the bald one now, you know, but, uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it, you know, that, that wasn't, and there's, a, I think a lot of Christian denominations, um, that also actually most of, or a lot of Protestant denominations would actually issue a lot of, uh, holidays, even Christmas, uh, Adventists do still celebrate Christmas. Uh, but that's that's kind of another another conversation. I mean, really, you know, Judaism's high holidays, quite a few of them have already passed, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, and, and, and so on. They usually come around this time as well. And Sukkot is another one of those that really brings people together. Uh, so maybe that's why Judaism, rabbinic Judaism anyway, has never felt a need uh, to have, you know, to have like a Halloween um, or something along those lines, or even like the, you know, kind of the Adventist bastardization of, of you know, something called Harvest Day. Um, but anyway, I mean, um, I'm just thinking back to my childhood, uh, Brian. Yeah. Um, is it Sukkot kind of harvest, harvest themed to some extent? Yeah, kind of. I mean, you, you basically, you go out and you're supposed to like live in tents, more or less. It, 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 it's, it's a bit of a long story, but it has to do with uh, living in the wilderness and, and remembering that time, remembering living in the, you know, the 40 years in the wilderness after leaving Egypt. Oh, okay. Yeah. I thought that was a harvest. I thought that was a harvest tent because I know I remember them building the so-called or whatever the, the, the structure is called. I don't know if it's mm -hmm. also called so-called, but uh, I remember that when I was a kid. I was I grew up around a lot of Jews, so uh, yeah. <laughs> always had that. We always had that in school from all the way through middle school. Um uh, and I, I always thought, I mean, I, I, maybe it took a harvest theme where we just because of the, 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 um, setting and there was a lot of non sure. but we always, we always had a little thing. Yeah. 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 So, uh, sec, what, what, what do you got with your, with uh, your Sam Hain? Go ahead. Well, one quick question. So you weren't allowed to trick or treat, were you? No, 
No, not uh, at all. So that reminds me. So I grew up in a tiny town and it reminds me of my friend who his parent, his parents were Jehovah's witness and he was not allowed to celebrate Halloween in school either. Yeah. Jehovah Um, witness is very similar to seventh day Adventists in a lot of ways, not all, but in a lot. Yeah. But he was also the only other kid who was, uh, did not stand for the pledge of allegiance. He is, you know, his parents were Jehovah witnesses and mine were weird anti-war pacifist or whatever. So we were the only two weirdos not standing for the pledge of allegiance. So, I mean, kudos to him, but yeah. Goddamn heroes. That's great. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean that really <laughs> like, that's, no, that's it was, amazing. it was super awkward as a kid. I'm not going to lie. Sure. Was, yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, but that, but I mean, you know, regardless of what your beliefs yeah. are, all your friends are doing it. You know what I mean? So yeah, totally. Um, I mean, I'm not huge on holidays. Um, so I have sort of mixed feelings like, um, you know, when it comes to certain holidays throughout the year, it's like, well, we pick this one day to like hang out with our family and show that our appreciation for one another and, and what we have and, and whatever else it's like, I'm, I'm just going to do that mostly whenever it feels right, you know, but, um, there's something about this time of the year. I think the reason there's a lot of like, um, remembrance of the dead and harvest festivals is because it's the end of harvest season and you're going into winter, which is historically like, um, when a lot of people died. Um, so you appreciate what you have and then you uh, sort of, um, appreciate who you've lost and remember those things. But it's, it's also, uh, the only reason I would even, you know, I consider celebrating this day. So like, um, my, um, this is our tradition. My uh, wife and I, we both lost our, our mothers. So we don't have, uh, our mothers are no longer here. And so like every October, we just, we watch a lot of spooky movies and we have fun with the kids and doing uh, various, you know, dressing up and whatever. And our kids have been wearing co- different costume every day for the past, since the beginning of the month or so. And, um, and, you know, we just remember like our mothers who aren't here anymore, but we do that all the time. The only thing is like this time of the year is sort of a microcosm for the human life cycle. Um, like, so, you know, you have the spring, uh, summer and then the fall and then going into winter and that, and then to, you know, sort of be reborn or created again in the spring. And this is sort of, um, the human life is actually a microcosm for that, um, cycle of the planet. And that the cycle of the planet is also, you know, a microcosm for possibly the cycles of the universe or whatever. So, uh, just doing that at this time of the year, I think it puts you in line with other things cosmically. And then, um, uh, other humans are doing it at the same time. So that has some sort of effect on reality and fucking, I don't know, hippie vibrational things and, uh, uh, whatever the thing. So that's my, would be my only reason for celebrating any holiday whatsoever is, um, just because it's sort of in line with other cycles of the universe and the earth and stuff. So, um, other than that, I just do my own thing and I celebrate my, whatever I want to in my own time when I fucking feel like it because i'm a weirdo individual harbinger of chaos so 
I, I do what I want when I want. It doesn't matter what uh, traditions exist. Um, but yeah, that's what we do for this time of the year. We'll have probably some fire and an and altar to the dead, but that's about it. Yeah, I think we live kind of in a traditional, you know, agricultural setting. There wouldn't be any question why we why have some of these, you know, seasonal holidays that we do. I think there's really a strong urge after the harvest is done and we've got all we've we've still got plenty and before it's too cold and everything. I think there's probably a natural urge for people to do like the seasonal festivals to um to to have a festival this time have a festival this time. Just like people do May Day, which is a lot less less popular and still unless you're like a communist or whatever but uh i think that was probably something people were really into at some time when when this you know the seasons were a lot harsher before modern technology and a lot of stuff was you know a lot of our lives were were centered around the the seasons and the cycles and everything in nature um and you know you know coping with the the temperature changes and everything else was a lot bigger of a deal was what your entire life was basically going to be dedicated to if you live in that kind of climate you know it's the european climate north america all that so it's like i think it really comes pretty natural you you really the idea of having a christmas is in, in a lot of places it's like you just kind of want to stay indoors which is i guess what a lot of times what you do in, in christmas time um but yeah like i said i i think that the whole popularity of october and Halloween to Thanksgiving time and pumpkins and everything. I think I, I love it. That's just like, seems to be something that set people are settling on. It's like their favorite season. And it is one of the good ones. It's, it's nice and temperate and you get to wear your sweaters and drink hot cocoa and all that stuff. Yeah. Penguin, is there any, is there like any official ruling on Halloween in Islam? Is there. Oh, oh, oh I'm sure against. Totally against. I'm sure. Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah. For a fact, just because it's not part of, our that's, that's just something I was going to actually say too. I had this thought. Um, so it, these kind of holidays don't exist in the Islamic tradition at all. For one thing, the lunar calendar doesn't have the same. The months don't line up on the same season right. every year. Well, they do. They it's eleven years. It's eleven days earlier every year because of it, it's a true lunar cycle and so forth. So we don't have seasonal holidays. They can they over the time they sh- it shifts all over the, the solar calendar. So our holidays are just we have two high holidays. There's a third Christmassy one that has the same kind of tradition of like. Yeah, how Christmas was like verboten back in the day too, but mm-hmm. there's still people that did it, and that's we have a third. But I've never celebrated it, and um, I'll be happy to be super orthodox in that regard because I just don't need another holiday. But it's a kind of the kids' <laughs> holiday, you know, kind of the give sure. gifts to kids' holiday, you know. So sure. I don't see anything wrong from that aspect. But anyways, um, yeah, two holidays they don't they don't end up following on the same same part of the year, so it just doesn't work that way. So, but it, I can't imagine you know having a harvest festival or spring festival completely divorced from religion but there's no religious i I really don't know how that actually works and i'm sure it's very it's varied throughout history in different places but that's those kind of things aren't really tied to our religion we can't we don't tie we cannot we don't bring things outside of our religion or that predate our religion in many most cases into our religion yeah you know what I mean, we don't incorporate the two. There's some things are just not going to be separate. And and frankly, there wasn't going to be that a harvest festival in in in, in uh, seventh century Arabia anyway, just because of the climate where it is on the equator and right. everything. And 
that's kind of cool because it's as you know it could be your your really your religion kind of remains constant everywhere you go but yeah it's just like you can celebrate the harvest but it's just not part of our religion it's it's something separate yeah yeah um i think you know certainly the point about arabia uh is another reason that in judaism why there probably isn't exactly something like that i think another part of it too is you know this concept of like the day of the dead of the remembrance of the dead or even you know like with the day of the dead where depending upon your belief system like the dead are actually coming back for you know a night or whatever um i think a big part of that comes down to really in you know in ancient judaism you had the the idea of sheol the afterlife was basically nothingness you know it wasn't exactly soul sleep but it was pretty close to that and so the idea I mean, in, in the Tanakh, in the Old Testament, there is the idea of the dead coming back, like Samuel gets called up by the witch of Endor and so on. So it's not that they couldn't, um, but by and large, like this idea of somehow bringing the dead back isn't really there. And when you get into Kabbalah later on, uh, or more formalized Kabbalah, then it turns into where there's resurrection and resurrection to the point that it can, you know, like a person uh an individual alive at the time could have the spirit of some ancient jew you know inhabit them um and you know there's lots of stories where kabbalists would be would build entire communities around graveyards you know for that sort of thing to happen um but that that's a that's a very different thing than an idea that like all of the dead rise again uh you know for a set amount of time yeah so i'm kind of i'm not surprised you know that that it's not there the other thing too with like the idea of a fall or winter festival i mean historically you have what's called the like the festival of calends is what they would call it in ancient rome uh but the the holiday of calendar which really isn't a part of judaism anymore which is kind of weird that it's not because the idea is that adam was seeing you know, he thought when in, in, in December at the time, what would have been December, you know, winter's happening and all that, he thinks the world is ending because the days are getting so short and all he can imagine is, oh, this is all over, I'm done. You know, and then he, and, and this is, you know, an argument for where the, you know, the idea for Christmas or, you know, the 21st to the 25th, uh, you know, would end up ha would end up getting prominence was because of this calends because it turns into this massive, uh, you know, joyous festival where, after the 21st you know in winter after the solstice suddenly adam realizes that oh actually you know the days are getting longer again and you know it's not the end of the world and this is all completely natural and that's a sort of a, an old idea of where perhaps you know the the veneration of the 25th would come would come from and really it all comes out of the winter solstice um but yeah, I mean, there's that, and I think that's probably part of also why Judaism doesn't. They really, there aren't. I mean, there's Hanukkah, but that that the Hanukkah isn't a biblical holiday. Hanukkah is a historical holiday, as in it's came out of an event that happened in history. That being, you know, a, a Jewish civil war. Um, it's not something that's in the Bible at all. Uh, so I think part of the reason there's no holidays there for Judaism really has to do with this. Uh, idea, this ancient idea that, you know, Adam was like terrified that, wow, the days are getting shorter, the world is ending. And so there's nothing, there's no point to like real celebration. Um, and honestly, Hanukkah is only a thing, I think, just to take on Christmas now, you know, for, for Jewish kids. So, I mean, I know it may, you know, yeah, arguably sure. it has some other meaning, but, um, and I, I know the meaning of it, but 
why does it have any prominence? I really think that that's why. Um, ultimately, outside of Calendar, you know, the really, I mean, part of it is, you know, so I'll put in this last bit in that there are a lot of holidays that I think were part of Judaism that are no longer celebrated. Um, and part of that has to do with the change in the calendar system. Um, so I'm open to that maybe a long thousands of years ago, there could have been some kind of day of the dead or some kind of Halloween, you know, uh, concept within Judaism, something along those lines. Uh, but I, I don't think so. Uh, but I'm just, you know, admitting that, yes, there are holidays that have been removed and that some of which we know about, some of which we don't. Uh, the other part of it that I'll add in quickly is, you know, in the Talmud, it talks about like these, these two, these two fires kind of coming out, uh, coming out of the mount, coming, uh, you know, one of them is Torah and the other is considered the book of nature. And, you know, I can readily, you know, accept. So, you know, like I said earlier, where rabbis would say, oh, Halloween is, no, that's, that's anti-halaha, you know, like we shouldn't even bother with it. We shouldn't celebrate it. But that doesn't mean it's wrong. Um, because again, knowledge, wisdom in Judaism comes from these two, these two fires going up into the heavens. And the other fire, like I said, once Torah, the other fire is actually really just paganism. It's the book of nature. And so, you know, pagan holidays, I think, have just as much validity uh, within Judaism uh, as, as anything that, that, that comes from Torah. Sec, what do you got? Oh, I was just going to say, I think Hanukkah is so popular just so Jewish kids get gifts too. You know what I mean? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's all it is. Yeah. I mean, which, <laughs> I, agree. I mean, fine. I mean, that's the only reason yeah. we even celebrate Christmas around here at all is just because, you know, the, the smile on the kid's face when they open a gift they really wanted. Yeah. It it's, makes me happy. So that's, that's enough of a reason for us to celebrate some sort of, you know, secular Christmas or whatever, you know? Yeah. Totally. Um, yeah. So they, we have fun. And also, it's again, it's back to like, you know, decorating a Christmas tree is fun, making cookies or whatever the thing, having hot cocoa when it's cold outside and, you know, kids opening gifts. That's all fun. So I don't need yeah, any other reason than that. You know what I mean? Totally. Um, so, yeah, that's that's where I'm that's where I'm at. Oh, also. Um, oh, shit. I had a point and now I forgot. Oh. <laughs> oh, I'm I'm uh I'm gonna convert to Judaism, and why am I gonna convert to Judaism? <laughs> well, come on, why is that? <laughs> well, I'm supposed to set somebody up for the oh uh, well, for the jokes, you know, for the jokes. It's the old Jewish comedian. Oh, that's thing. right, yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. It's like yeah, I'm just here for the jokes. Yeah, there's been a lot going around about a a Jewish space laser recently, and I. Oh, Brian, have you been holding out on me? Like, I, oh man, where do I get the Jewish space laser? Do I got to convert or, you, you know, know, like, yeah, it, it's funny. Um, I don't have it up here, upstairs here in my office. Um, downstairs, I have a water bottle that I take to the gym with me, and I have a patch on there that says uh, member of the Jewish Space Laser Corps. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, there's the, you know, I actually, I just learned, I think it came out last month, it came out September 2023. Uh, Michael Rothschild, don't 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 uh, don't oh worry boy. about the name. Uh, but Michael Michael Rothschild, the author, uh, came out with a book that's all about the conspiracy theory. Really, it's about the Rothschild family in general. 
Um, but the, the title of the book is like the Jewish space laser. Um, and, and it's all about how that ended up becoming a, a conspiratorial meme, uh, shall we say? Uh, yeah. Uh, oh, really, so a guy, a guy named Rothschild says, Oh no, there's nothing to worry about with the Rothschilds. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, yeah. I just got the book on audible. I haven't read it. And honestly, there's a good chance. Michael Rothschild isn't even a Roth or isn't like that kind of a Rothschild. You know, there's another writer named Rothschild and he's like no relation either. Right, uh, right. I think he's a, uh, he might be a science fiction writer or some kind of fiction writer. Mm. Um, but yeah, named Rothschild, and I'm like, eh. but no yeah, relation. There's a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, to yeah, wrap um, up the, the Halloween okay. thing, uh, I you know this will probably come out long after Halloween, but I hope everybody had a safe and fun uh, whatever celebration you do and or don't this time of the year. And you know, for any of the necromancers out there, just remember that sometimes dead is better. So. <laughs> <laughs> Sir, I love this time of the year. If no other reason, just it's an excuse to watch a lot of scary movies, which I love. So, I mean, yeah, no, you know, what? real, real quick comment on that with horror movies. Um, you know, I and, and in fact, uh, uh, Mrs. Sovereign and I are going to be talking about this on an upcoming episode. Um, there, there's an evolutionary argument for watching horror films that it's actually a very good thing. Um, it can even be, I, I mean, you want to be careful which ones, but it can even be helpful for like young people, you know. Uh, and the idea is I was, I was shocked by it and I'll just mention it here. I was kind of surprised by the argument, but it reminds me very much of why it's healthy, mentally healthy to watch science fiction because science fiction allows you, it gives you a path to process the rapid changes that occur in our present civilization. Uh, you know, technological changes, everything else, because everything happens so fast. We can't really take the time to figure out, okay, where can all of this go? Science fiction can actually collate all that and and give us some kind of a response so that our brain can do something with the information. Um, I even call it on my show, I call it the science fiction method. Uh, but horror movies can actually do a very similar thing where we don't, especially today, maybe even more important. I think it might explain why horror is so popular more so than it's ever been even um, because horror movies will show you the extreme possibilities of existence and the dangerous possibilities of existence, things that we normally don't experience, and certainly most people don't experience anymore, uh, you know, in, in our modern, uh, you know, modern world. And so watching horror movies can actually help your brain, like, kind of like how science fiction can make sense of all the changes and in information happening and all the new technology and everything. Horror can actually help you make sense of uh, you know, the terrifying aspects of the world and about survival and all these other things. So, so actually, you know, watching horror movies, very good thing to do. Uh, but go ahead, Zach. Yeah. It takes you out of your comfort zone, you know, totally. and thinks about what, not just what is, but what could be and, uh, yes. what is possible. And, and, you know, also that all this could come crashing down at any moment. So, you know, things are kind of temporary and, yeah. um, you know, it makes you, uh, it's also mm, sort of an allegory for, um, all, all parts of the human condition. You know, um, I think that's a lot of, at least what monster movies are, um, is sort of a, a an allegory for what humans can be capable of. Um, yeah. but, uh, my, my daughter, she loves, she was just watching Godzilla and Kong, which is not a horror movie, but it's a, you know, it's a monster movie. It's a monster film. Yeah. 
uh, which is what horror started as was just like monster yes. movies. And uh, she loves two shows, two things that she usually loves. She likes Spider-Man. She's barely not even three yet. So she's gonna be three. <laughs> she likes Spider-Man, uh, Godzilla versus Kong, which I was just watching the other day with her. And she loves she's loved Stargate since she was an infant. So right on. there she's got a she's got a head start on all of you. That's healthy. I love it. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> so great. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, just another quick comment on that. Uh, mm. You know, I, I think that because I know we got some great subjects we want to get into. Um, I think overall, you know, another reason, and, and this gets into superhero films as well. Um, I think it, it's not a surprise to me that come, you know, the beginning of the 21st century, when everything is becoming so, shall we say, scientific, more so than it's ever been. Um, supernatural getting explained away all the time. Um, all these fantastical things that I think we kind of deep down realize are a part of our existence. Um, but we keep getting told it's not possible or we keep getting told that that's not real or whatever. Uh, I think that we find ourselves having to express these, these things that we know actually are very real. And we do so through our entertainment. And, and that's, and I think it's also why a lot of people will, another reason that people will go to horror movies, go to superhero films, because it's the only place where they can go, where it's safe to explore these aspects of the human condition. Um, and, and that, that, I mean, that's another thing. And really, again, it, it's a pushback against the scientific materialism of the day. But anyway, that's what I got. Yeah, I think um, this is really close to what I, this is almost just a point of, being, of redundancy. But like, yeah, I think we have a natural tendency to want to look at like, you know, gore or horror or or something like that. Danger, predators, um, which could be like a, a you know a Michael Myers character character or Jason or something like that. Like yeah, like a, a predator of the of the bipedal sort, um, because. It's. I do think it's like basically like, like an ev- what you call an evolutionary or instinctive mechanism because we want to know about the danger. That's why people want to look at so much c- crime stuff about serial killers stuff like that. People are fascinated. I think a lot of that is because I think there's other things too, maybe, but like there's there's a need to want to like take in this information just because it's it's a danger. Our, our mind says it's a danger, even if it's like something that's actually in real life very uncommon. You know, we want to know about what the danger is to our mortality yeah totally what else we got sec all right i got one is this okay so i got one quick question from our questions for the host channel in our listener discord and this will be real quick and then we can move on to um other less important things um (laughs) (laughs) just kidding okay so this is a fun one and it should be quick if you could only listen to one or the other for the rest of your life, would it be punk or metal? I'll let you guys answer this one first. All right, I guess I'm the one that's going. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. Jeez. Um, all right. I, I like. I respect the hell out of punk, and there's a lot of like metal that wouldn't exist without punk. Um, so, and and there's like even pop artists that would have never come into fruition without punk. Like, I mean, I can't imagine my life without Billy Idol. Uh, and I mean that quite seriously, like that guy is so ridiculously talented, uh, you know, it hurts and you feel it through the speakers. Um, but at the same time, you know, I've always brought this or we've brought this up in the past, like metal is, 
you know, it's the thing that can encapsulate all music, though admittedly, anytime it gets into like, I don't know, Lincoln Park or Hollywood Undead or something like that, where there's like bringing in what could be argued as punk aspects or even like hip hop aspects. Like, I don't, I don't really care for that myself. That's uh, not my bag. Um, so, I, I mean, I just, I, I would have to say, I would have to say metal. Like uh, that's, that's really what it comes down to because it can encapsulate all, all, all other forms of music. And uh, I also think that, you know, a, a lot of metal heads before metal existed would have been classical fans because of the complexity of the music and the complexity of, of the music really does not, not that there's anything wrong with simple music. I mean, my favorite band is Kiss, you know, and that's about as simple as it gets. Um, but the complexity of music certainly does a lot of, uh, gives me some nice fuzzies in my brain. So there we go. Penguin, you got anything on that? Yeah, I'm not a huge music listener these days, but I'm pretty familiar with like a wide variety of music for sure. I would never, I would never uh, limit myself. Well, the, but the question, but I would normally never limit myself to like a certain type of music. But uh, so I've never been. I have listened to metal at for brief stages of my life. Some little bit of metal. Certainly not a metal head. Don't know really anything. You're talking about the, the you know the history of the technical uh, details. I, I know some of the bands. Um, but that being said, like Brian's right, uh, punk, I mean, it's not really what the question is. It's what you can listen to. But punk has been so influential to a lot of things. I've never really been into punk per se, but it's so influential in so many, just music in general, popular music in different forms uh, over the years. For everything from like its origins to its its influence on pop and like, like I said, metal and hip hop, like all, like, like even it's Genesis in some of the same places. I don't know. Punk is just culturally so influential. I know the question really isn't which one would you like have erased from history or anything like that. But I think it's worth pointing out um, that if, if, if the question was something more along those lines, like do you, would you want to live, have a music, you know, playlist that is free from punk influences. That'd be really tough. Hey y'all it's resonance. Um, yeah, from the Let's Make Some Shit podcast, uh, here telling you guys about some of the new stuff I've got at Appalachian Apothecary. Right now, I have a remineralizing tooth powder that's made with calcium carbonate and bentonite clay. Um, I have a four ounce jars that I'm selling for 10 bucks a piece. And then uh, also, I've done a couple of body butters. Um, they're whipped tallow body butters. One's infused with arnica, and the other one is a very potent pain reliever. And if you'd like more info on that, you can find me at radical underscore resonance on Telegram or at Mother of Chaos XAOS on Twitter. Um, I'd be happy to make tinctures for you regarding like any medical condition that you have. So please reach out to me, and let's see if we can get you some herbal remedies. Well said. Um, my answer is probably like a slightly different variation of Brian's. Um, I love both punk and metal, but I think I actually like punk, love punk more for, for one, it was my first love. Um, it, I, I might not be here for weren't for punk rock, um, for a lot of different reasons. Um, but I would actually have to, for this the, this question, I would actually have to choose metal mainly because it just gives me a lot more options. <laughs> um, there's 
there's some a lot of my um love of or the bands i like from punk are from like the late 70s early 80s and it's not to say i don't like some new punk there's a lot of new punk i like um but there's a ton more new metal that i like and there's so many different kinds of metal that i could listen to it for the rest of my life and not get bored whereas i think i would kind of run out of new stuff to listen to if i chose punk so that i would sh- i love punk more a little bit more but i would actually choose metal just for sort of more options um because like brian said it it can incorporate so many other different kinds of music in it um you know i could be listening to finnish polka metal one day and thrash metal the next and death metal the next day after that and it would just you would never run out of stuff to listen to forever so um yeah you got to answer the question literally because i think we all agree that like punk is super important and and was in its day like just i think it's very if you don't really know the history and and you know where the where this music started and 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 you know what kind of venues and just the, the the time period it's very easy to underrate the importance of punk when it came out yeah i mean it's really it is one of those questions where i don't in this one like either answer is right you know like there, there isn't a wrong answer it's not like would you rather listen to metal or country in that instance there's a wrong answer and that wrong answer is country but, but uh, I, people can come after me that's fine but uh, it's a cia creation anyway so uh okay um but yeah, there's no wrong answer. Like punk or metal, I mean, you're both you're you're just you're gonna have a great time the rest of your life. I think either way. For sure. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. All right. Um. So, <sighs> libertarian history. I've been thinking Ooh. about this since the last time we talked, and now we can go down this road with you. Can guys can go down this road with me if you want to, but or we can go on to something else. But I've been having trouble trying to decide. Where do you be- begin with libertarian history? So let me lay lay something out for you guys, and I'll see what you guys think. So I started thinking, well, you know, you can go back to the uh, Christian use of the word libertarian, where it's where, you know, sort of proponents of free will. Um, you can start with, you know, sort of de Jacques, who, who use the term libertarian. A lot of folks will go further back to sort of like a the this is what I see the progression of libertarian thought as, but the um, the levelers and the diggers in the English Civil War, which were essentially different variations of classical liberalism um, or proto classical liberal liberalism, excuse me. Um, but it, some folks will rightly go further back than that and sort of cite. Uh, Lao Tzu or uh, Diogenes um, from Greek philosophy or, and, um, you know, Lao Tzu from the Tao Te Ching. And um, with, I would, I would agree with those as well, but my, what I would posit is that there actually, there isn't a beginning to libertarian thought. This might be something that goes back since humans have existed, maybe before that, uh, it's a, a dichotomy I see in um, in humans throughout history and prehistory, and um, 
and I, I mentioned this uh, to Brian. We were, we were talking. Brian got too curious because I said I had a little twist on the libertarian theory, and he texted me. He's like, I got, he's like, so what is it? <laughs> yeah, he I said gave, you had I a surprise, and I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> Jews don't do surprises. <laughs> so I, you know, I would say that in some sense, if it doesn't, if there is actually a beginning, it might even start in Sumer or Babylon with the the myth of Mardu. Okay, so I've heard this name pronounced several different ways. It's either Mardu, Marduk, Marduk. Um, I'm not sure what the proper pronunciation of that word is, but it's uh, it's uh, we'll call it Marduk for the sake of this or Marduk. Um, and his battle with Tiamat. And I would say that libertarians are actually descendants of or or are represented by the archetype of Tiamat. So what <laughs> is everybody following me still? Um, Marduk, yeah. <laughs> Marduk is the god of order, of rule, of civilization, of... Uh, I would say even conformity. He brought order to the universe, and Tiamat was the the goddess, the mother goddess, number one. But uh, so you have sort of the paternalism versus maternalism thing going here too. But she was the goddess of chaos and creation, and the wild and the ocean, and all of these things that I think are best best represent that um, side of humanity, which sort of yearns for, you know, freedom and the whimsical and, and silliness and the wild and the, uh, and the, the sort of the absence of imposed order. And, and um, I think in some sense that libertarian, the, that I don't, won't say it's the beginning, but that is the best sort of um, description of these two archetype archetypes or personifications of these archetypes of the dichotomy which exists in humanity. There's always going to be those that yearn for order, and there are those that yearn for sort of freedom and, and chaos in the wild. And I mean chaos in the best possible sense. I don't mean like murder and violence and death and whatever. And uh, I just mean like, uh, um, you know, just being uh, spontaneous and free and, and free flowing and left alone and, and all of these things. So I think that that and honestly, there's some bleed over from Sumer, obviously, because Marduk is Marduk is the son of your boy there, Brian um, Enki. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, so there's obviously this goes back to Sumer as well. And um, it might go back for ever. This might be a description of the this sort of uh the dawn of civilization which was to impose you know order law rule over humanity um so i i don't think there is a beginning to libertarian thought i think we are just the descendants of this long lineage that goes back probably before time itself so does anyone have a disagreement with that um I don't know if I disagree. I mean, I, I think, yes, I absolutely think libertarianism has always been a part of it because I think everybody's, uh, well, I'll just stick with half the equation. I think everybody's born an anarchist, right? 
um, which is all, I mean, libertarian can mean a lot of different things. You know, uh, I mean, the original users of the term libertarians were communists, right? Uh, but regardless, um, using the, I guess the, we'll say the myth for, for this conversation, the myth of Marduk and, and Tiamat, I mean, that gets used for a lot of different things. It's not uninteresting. You know, one of the popular, and I think this falls, it's not a direct correlation with what you're saying, Sec, but it falls in line with your kind of your abstract thinking on this in that a lot of people think that the 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 end of tiamat the death of tiamat you know by marduk was actually the tiamat represented the matriarchy that was destroyed by the patriarchy thousands of years ago um that's a very popular uh anthropological explanation of what you know, and I know people want to bristle at patriarchy and matriarchy, but that's that's a very, very popular uh, made, uh, uh, anthropological explanation. Of... That's sort of Crowley's argument as well, that mm -hmm. we started in more of a matriarchal uh, era of man, and then we moved into yeah. the patriarchal, and now we're in the age of the, the man-child <laughs> right now, and then we're going to go back to some sort of matriarchal society, but yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I yeah. I mean, and and it's you know, it's a it's an anthropological analysis that makes sense because you know how do we often do anthropology when we look at these ancient myths? Is we will often look at modern, say, hunter gatherers, okay, and a lot of them, believe it or not, and I, most people don't realize this, but a lot of them are matriarchal, uh, even ones that are. Uh, societally shall we say or socially uh, advanced you think of like the Hadusani or more popularly known as the the Iroquois you know the Iroquois were matriarchal um and but these are you know these are people who lived the same way for so long you know for thousands of years so the idea um that you know that 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 somehow Tiamat is representative of the matriarchy you know it's not an unfair analysis to make um, I don't think, I mean, I, I'm going to give you credit here, Sec, because I don't think I've ever heard, and I don't say this because it's a bad idea, I say it's because it's a very interesting one. I don't think I've ever heard anybody, like, try to try to say that, you know, the the the, uh, the battle, the mythological battle between Marduk and Tiamat is actually representative of, you know, I mean, it is order and chaos, yes, but that, that it's actually representative of the, the battle between, um, you know, top-down authoritarian, or, you know, authoritarianism versus, shall we say, in this case, libertarianism. Um, that's that's a pretty fascinating explanation. Um, I mean, certainly, you know, you mentioned Enki and like and my boy, that being uh, Zechariah Sitchin. Zechariah Sitchin's explanation of that uh, myth was that Tiamat was actually a planet um, that existed within our solar system and that made contact, you know, with another uh, planetary body, and that that ended up force or that ended up creating the prime asteroid belt that exists, you know, between Mars and the rest of the solar system going back. Um, and, you know, that those remains are what Tiamat was. So his explanation wasn't so much that, you know, it was some kind of ideological battle, but that it was actually an astronomical event, you know, that occurred. Um, I've never, it, you know, it's an interesting idea and it gets into kind of like Emmanuel Vilikovsky's work and all that. And, and I've never been totally sold on it, admittedly, um, but that's getting into a completely different conversation. My, my point is, is just that this is a really fascinating, uh, you know, analysis of that. Uh, going back to Sumer, I mean, 
I'm just going to add on to the historical context very quickly in that it's very, you know, for me, a central part of what I considered libertarianism when I definitely waved that, shall we say, that, that ideological flag a lot more, um, hedonism was an essential part of that. Now, hedonism, you can absolutely trace all the way back to, you know, to Sumer. And I would argue and have argued in the past that hedonism is like the first philosophy um, because it comes down to the simple, you know, some of our oldest writings from Sumer, which we know they're actually quoting even older writings that probably go back to the time before Uruk, which is the first city, uh, where it would say, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, we all say that it's, it's a cultural meme, like everybody knows that, but nobody realizes that's one of the oldest fucking things we know that humans ever said. Um, and I think eat, drink, and be merry, and the, you know, kind of what you can extrapolate from, from what that means is ultimate, it's hedonism, but then at the same time, and I would argue that's ultimately libertarianism. So I think all of this is a long-winded way of saying, Sec, you bringing it all the way back to that, at least, I think is fair. Penguin, you got a disagreement or anything to add to that? Um, well, yeah, I would say that uh, when I think of libertarianism, I think of something way more constrained than like um, taking it back before, say, uh, like you're, you, you, you know, the 19th century stuff, and then you go to proto, the proto stuff, the proto libertarianism, all the way back to like the English Civil War and stuff, which is stuff I've been dying to talk with you about for a long time. Um, and but I, I see no problem t looking at like what the influences are of that through history and in the human condition. I would actually call like some of the some of the things you're you're, you're talking about kind of I, I almost wouldn't even use the word libertarianism. I, I I just associate that with just modern modern thought. I think of it as um like what you were describing in the Sumerian context with the myth with the myth and everything, which is always supposed to be allegorical with how they actually really did see the world and the cosmos. Um I would I would call that just the the anarchic I, I, I think of libertarianism as more something really closely associated with a, a modern, I mean, I mean modern, I mean in the past, like 400 years, a modern liberalism and that being more of this, the anarchic, I don't want to, not anarchist. I mean, we're doing talking about a, a something that some guy wrote down at a certain point, um, Proudhon and onwards, but like the anarchic principle versus order. And that's just, I don't even know a word for that. We could call it libertarianism. We can call it proto, but you really wouldn't call it proto liberalism it's just a pro it's just the anarchic principle versus i don't even want to say order because order is sometimes used when you talk about order out of well i think you're, you're talking about more like formalized libertarianism right like more yeah, yeah and i don't want to use the word libertarianism i would say it's it's the, you're 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 talking all about all about the anarchic principle that i think is, is bigger than yeah. just libertarianism yes. I, um it's 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 sort of leisure and disorder but doing what makes you it could happy also be spontaneous yes. order yeah, yeah 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 it's 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 all of that stuff it's it's, uh -huh. it's it's really broad versus the other really broad it's it's very much like a a yin and yang type of deal a, a, a dualism you know what i mean right i, mean, I well, don't so even know exactly what the word is for word is for that well so here that's so this is sort of the problem i I faced when I've been thinking about the the history of libertarianism is I'm like, well, when do you start? And th so since we recorded last, I've been thinking about this sort of off and on, you know, 
And I'm like, when do you start? So do you start when people started using the word libertarian? Do you know what I mean? And so even like, you know, classical liberals or even modern libertarians will at least point back to Lao Tzu. Lao Tzu never, Rothbard did, did multiple times. He called him the first anarchist. So Lao Tzu never used the term libertarian or anarchist, but, you know, so yes, in the early 17th century, you have, you know, people sort of developing thoughts, writings, and theories around these sort of, I don't know, impulses, personality traits, uh, values. They start developing theories and terms to describe these things. But Really, these were something that were part of humanity forever is kind of the argument I'm making. It's just that in sort of the proto-enlightenment and enlightenment era, people had more fucking time to sit down and write long diatribes about these things. But there were something they were describing and theorizing about things that have always existed throughout humanity. It's, yes, that anarchic impulse or, you know, hedonist impulse or just... Like you said, eat, drink, and mar be merry. That's just another way of saying, uh, you know, there's a meme that goes around a lot. It's a, say it's a saying. It's like humans take seriously what the gods made for fun. And it it's just that, you know, life is short. It's too short to not do things that, uh, that make you happy, that, that do, to do what you want and to be free. Right. And that impulse has existed throughout humanity. There's people that want that, and there's people that want imposed order. And that there's that's the dichotomy throughout human history, and we just sit on that other side, the the the, the not the guardians of order, whatever that other side is, and it's been called libertarianism rightly for the last four hundred years, but before that, it was just other things. There wasn't a, a term necessarily for it. It was sort of a collection of various values and and you know hedonism is certainly another description but uh, it's more than just that you know it's it's a lot of yeah it's a lot of things um so yeah, it's, it's hard to it's hard to pick a starting point on libertarian history is i guess the point of all of this really because i think it's um i don't know if we're born anarchists maybe but it's certainly there have been people that I would call anarchists all throughout human history, or at least had those uh, impulses. Yeah. yeah uh, so one place I'll go, go ahead. Uh, so I'll, I'll just say, I'll inject this. Um, yeah. I mean, the idea of being, you know, born anarchist, actually the, the whole phrase is being born anarchist and atheist because a baby has no concept of God authority or anything along, like it just doesn't know, you know, and it doesn't care and which is great. Right. It's like, they're like cats. It's, it's awesome. But, um, but so so that, that's what I mean by that is that there's there, again that the concept's just not there. But then you know maybe some people would argue that uh, um, unconsciously it is there, like it's it's just signals that it's picking up that it can't really formalize into words. Uh, but I think you're raising a really great point, Sec, in that you know this is the same. Speaking of atheists, this is the same thing with atheism. Like people think atheism is a modern thing, or its popularity anyway is modern, you know, or that it started with Voltaire, which is just not even remotely true you know there, there have been fantastic books even in the past decade that talk about how actually in ancient rome most people were atheists they did not belong to the imperial cult 
or the cult of Saturn or, you know, all these different things. Most people throughout history have actually been atheists. And if you just you just have to look at the texts themselves. Uh, the problem is, is that the victors, usually the cults, would, you know, had most of the writings. So we just assume that most people weren't atheists. But that's not that's not true uh, at all. So you know, to, to call out and say, okay, yeah, we didn't have a term for it until now, but it's always been there, I think is an important point to bring up because I think there are people who would argue against libertarianism saying, this is only a philosophy that exists upon the largesse of civilization, which isn't true. Uh, you know, and certainly you could go back to Max Stirner and I think that would debunk the whole idea. But regardless, I think it's it, it's something worth bringing up. And the other thing I'll bring up quickly is that when, I, when we say he didn't, well, I'll assume we, but when I say, when hedonism said, we're not talking about just like getting trashed and doing a bunch of drugs and everything else. We're talking about ethical hedonism, which is genuine historical philosophy. Um, why don't you know a lot about it? Well, it's because they, the hedonists weren't the victors and all their books got burned. But regardless, it, it is a, a, a genuine philosophical school that, you know, gets recognized. Go ahead, Penguin. Yeah, I'm, well, I actually, I'm yeah, I'm not actually um, familiar with with that school or anything, and and in the term, the use of that use of the term, I definitely wouldn't associate myself with like with like hedonism. And also, I've always considered libertarianism and anarchism as two different, completely different concepts. And then I would I would I would always use the word libertarian anarchist to describe that. Uh, you know the center, the, the the overlap portion of the Venn diagram, and I think that's a certain kind of group of people that we've all you know been or had interactions with and read and stuff like that. But I think you know, I mean, obviously you can be one and not the other for sure. Most people of either have not been in that middle portion, like the typical you know typical Venn diagram looks like, where there's got a fairly small portion of it um, overlaps. Um, and yeah, I almost like to use the word. Um, anarchic if not if not anarchist to describe that kind of disorder the, the kind of spontaneous order aspect which is really important that's why the, the the development of a libertarian anarchism was so important because it's that that anarchist principle that is what i see it's the anarchist principle that um motivates the uh spontaneous order or the lack of you know opposed order or the bottom-up order or, or the market-driven order and yeah um, I, or go ahead Penguin. when we when we use the word market we use it very broadly of course yeah i mean i think this is a pretty key thing is to define like what is libertarianism when we say that what do we mean and i agree with you penguin i think there i mean regardless of what i think of the definition of libertarianism there are lots of people who are uh what we would call status, you know, people who want government that consider themselves libertarians, you know, and they, I mean, the libertarian party are not, not, I mean, I know there's anarchists involved or people who call themselves that, uh, but you know, that that's inherently not an anarchist anarchistic institution, right? It, it's, it's something that is working within the government, which is, you know, inherently not anarchist. Um, so, Though, though that see even that gets squishy, right? Because you know the 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 what what equated to a constitution for the the Soviet Union expressly said that the purpose of the Kremlin, the purpose of the Soviet Union, was to eventually dissolve all forms of government and become an anarchist civilization. Like that's exactly what it said. Um, which is why you know I've always made a little bit of a slow clap for the for the Soviet Union. Uh, again, what 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 equated to a constitution for them because. 
it was saying no, eventually we got need to become stateless. Um, but you know, that that's not something the Libertarian Party is, is as I understand it anyway, is going for. So yeah, um, and, and this would be a major argument between, you know, in the early days of what I would call online libertarianism, one of the major, you know, kind of the major back and forths that were happening on Facebook all the time was, you know, it, it was minarchists versus anarchists, right? Minarchists being minimum state and anarchists being no state. And they both called themselves libertarians, but like, okay, who's the true libertarians? And that, you know, arguing for who is the true libertarian is as much a key aspect of the history of libertarianism, I think, um, than any of its ideas, you know, even though it comes down to the ideas ultimately. But that, I mean, that is colored libertarian history from Rothbard before it was even online. You know, I mean, you, you had Rothbard and, and uh, uh, you know, Samuel Konkin arguing back and forth about these things, right? Uh, so anyway, yeah, I think defining libertarianism would be a pretty helpful thing here if we want to even try that. <laughs> And, and I'm not well, saying I'm up to the task. What do you got, Zach? I'm 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 definitely. I think for the purpose of this conversation, we should probably try to define define libertarianism. <clears throat> However, I am also for, even though I use it quite a bit, I'm for letting the term go and letting it die. And whoever oh, wants to take yeah. up that that term can have it. And I have no interest in trying to revitalize um, the word libertarianism if that's the way it goes. I will use a different word because, you know, just a, an old trope, Glenn Beck calls himself a libertarian. So if that, you know, like I have no interest in being associated with that term, if that's what it's being used to describe, <laughs> you know what I mean? So I have no ties to the term libertarian. Um, you know, it's often, often associated with sort of what Konkin would call partyarchy and the coctopus and, Ayn Rand and and whoever the hell else and um, yeah, but there just, are even there are even wider concentric circles out, outside of that. There's, sure, there's, there's all sorts of uses of the term, and some of them are just blatantly unrelated. Um, because yeah, so people I, see liberty in the term so libertas liberty, you know. Roderick Long rightly cites Ayn Rand in using the term anti-concept, and um, Roderick Long oh, wow, uses that uses That's that her. too yeah he gets that from mine Rand. so uh you might call roderick long like one of the few left randians or whatever the thing but um or left over aristotelian whatever but anyway he makes the term about capitalism socialism that these terms are um anti-concepts in the sense that they obscure um more than they enlighten they um they're so em um, <clears throat> amorphous and uh, ambiguous uh, there's there's uh, it the term itself does not suit um discourse or or trying it to reach consensus disambiguate. it creates more ambiguity than it, yes it, it has often has many um contradictory definitions people will be different people because we're talking different people here and even within uh -huh. the same person necessarily that they'll have different uh, contradictory um you know meanings and connotations and so it actually but when you get multiple people doing discourse is what discourse generally is when you get multiple people involved it it actually creates you the use of the term actually i've been thinking i've thought about this a lot a lot a lot because i actually have a pretty i'm have a longer list of anti-concepts now um 
most of these labels, in fact. But um, it creates, it leaves you, I guess the definition in my mind is it leaves you with more ambiguity for using this term versus yes. Left, less. Yes. And I think this might be true for the term libertarian as well. Um, so I will. Oh, uh, yeah. And I, I, I think that's true of a lot of words too. I, I think that's true of most of these, honestly, most of the big labels. Um, uh, yeah, libertarianism, sure. um, but capitalism was always the big one. Socialism, yes, conservative, conservative or conservatism, and liberalism. I mean, what what the hell do you know that someone means by that uh, when they use one of those terms? What what on earth do you think, out of context, do you think that means? You know what I mean? It's 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 it could it could be it's like you know it could be literally almost anything. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, for sure. I agree. Um, but I guess for the purpose of this conversation, we can kind of agree on a loose definition. Um, and maybe it might be helpful to go back a little bit and sort of explore the term libertarian, which, if I understand and remember correctly, it started off as a sort of Christian philosophy and that it was those that um, valued free will or believed in free will over determinism. Um, so that's where the term started. It was later used by de Jacques, um, who was an early anarcho-communist, um, and it was just used to as a synonym for anarchism, essentially. Um, I think later it sort of, uh, started to um, develop into a person. Libertarian would describe a person that um, wanted to maximize human agency and freedom. Um, and that's if I think that's a decent working definition, if you guys kind of all agree with that. So libertarianism is those who wish to create increase personal freedom and agency and um, uh, I would say reject or want to reduce authority uh, or external authority. Does anybody? Yeah, I think disagree. I liked no, it. I, I liked I, it until you mentioned authority, and then I think the authority is a, is is a, is a confusing concept. But you said external. Okay, we can authority. drop Again, authority. It's like, it's yeah. like yeah, it's it's it's, it's like yeah, you even even. But no, I liked that you added the, the the extra word on to authority because then it's like, what is authority and. You know, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I actually like the first part of the definition as a standalone. Yeah, it's almost yeah. like words are a fuck and they're all made up. You know, it's really hard. <laughs> it's like they're all symbols or something, which they're they right, are. Exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I like the idea. Basically, you know, it's it's maximizing autonomy. Uh, yeah. You know, like that, which which I think is is a succinct way of, of what you laid out there. And, and I, I would agree with that definition. Um, because none of that is saying no gods, no masters, you know, so it is still separating it ultimately from uh, from anarchism. And I think saying that it's maximizing autonomy also plays well into Ayn Rand's argument against anarchism, which her argument was always that, well, if you don't have if you don't have, you know, the state should just exist for defense. And if you don't have defense, the first warlord that comes along is going to take every, all your freedoms away from you. And so, you know, because I, I think there are lots of libertarians who would argue for, you know, government kind of like Ayn Rand, where they would argue for, uh, yeah, no, we need this defense structure or something like that. Now, I don't want to add that into the definition, but just that in the, in the interest of maximizing autonomy, 
you may want that. So yeah, that, that definition flies with me. What you said, Zach. Okay. Um, so would you, would anybody, if going back to libertarian history, where, according to that definition of libertarian, uh, where would you sort of start the modern theory of libertarianism or uh, beliefs and, and theories that, that arise around that basic principle? So I'm fine with um, just having an arbitrary starting point. Um, yeah, sure. I, I guess, again, it's, it's what we wanted to talk about. We can about. go back to Marduk actually... again, but we can yeah. <laughs> Let's go through all human uh, history, but you know, we have to start based somewhere. Based on who I'm yeah, – yeah, based on who I'm listening to like nowadays, who I'm, I'm kind of interested in nowadays, I would say um, just, just arbitrarily saying luck. Well, I'm not like an expert on or anything, but if you want to go back and talk, take, talk about the broad view, now so I could say I want to know about libertarian history starting in you know with with Rothbard in 1952 or whatever, or just with Rothbard generally, um, and you're talking about in a, a certain kind of American modern libertarianism, and even then, like a lot of the, for several decades, you're not really you could skip several decades and just talk about stuff that's a little more for the most part relevant to what's going on now but if you're talking about just the whole philosophy as it's kind of like followed in by the people that kind of use the term or that have the term applied to them in modern times i would say probably i'm happy with it being locked that wouldn't be the answer for everybody but i i'm i'm, I'm cool with just putting it out there and saying that and then from what i know of Locke, i think he's a pretty interesting guy don't have any problem with him hey y'all I got something cool to tell you about. So you know how uh, I'm doing a big initiative to try to get more people to Gorilla Garden? Well, uh, Daggerist over at agoristacres.com, he's kind of teaming up with me a little bit here to help support this uh, cause. So if you use the code Agora10 uh, over at agoristacres.com, you'll get 10% off. Um, for any reason, um, you're buying seeds, whether that be grill gardening or your own garden, anything like that. But if you contact Daggerist uh, or myself and you tell them that I sent you to get seeds for gorilla gardening, he might be able to swing an additional hookup. Um, it might be just whatever he's got, you know, a uh, surplus of or that kind of thing, whatever he can do. Um, so he's he's down for the cause here and really wants to help uh, see this come to fruition. Um, so I'm, I am Sekmagora, at Sekmagora on all the, the um, social media. You can contact Daggerist directly on his website, uh, agoristacres.com again. And uh, the code is Agora10. to just gets 10% 10, uh, 10 off straight up. And um, tell him I sent you for, for Gorilla Gardening, and you'll... Uh, He'll, he'll try to hook you up however he can. And um, what, this is what we got to do. We got to support people that support us that want to see more of this in the world. Um, so, again, it's agorastakers.com. Check it out um, and get out there and, and, and cause, a, cause a ruckus and get some gorilla gardening done. All right, y'all. Peace. Brian, you got an arbitrary starting point that's entirely made up. <laughs> I mean, I, I, yeah, 
I honestly, I'd probably, and, and this is, it's entirely made up because like, even, even though we have our simple, our very simplified definition of what libertarianism is or libertarianism is, um, I, I think I still attach so many different ideas to it. So many, so many different abstracts that aren't even ones that I agree with that aren't even mine, uh, that just that I libertarians, I know, you know, we're, we're such a big part of, um, I mean, a part of me wants to start with Mises, you know, I know that's very recent. Um, you know, I mean, my first thought was like Menger, you know, it was Carl Menger, but, um, mm. but yeah, I mean, a part of me went with Mises and I mean, an, another, I think one of the best, we don't, we, we can start with Locke. That's fine. Um, cause I, I, I think that's interesting as well. Uh, but admittedly, you know, I, I don't think we, we, we have to recognize the second highest selling book in the United States, which understand, I do think libertarianism is very much tied with the United States, uh, the libertarianism that we would talk about. Um, I mean, having a lot of European friends, most of them all, they all complain like, no, we don't have any ideas like this here. You know, even though some of like Bastiat and some others, you know, weren't, weren't exactly American. Um, I would say but, the Anglo world, but yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. but because I mean, yeah, even but Britain, I think, I think, I think in modern times we've gotten to a point, no, historically, yes, but I think in modern times we've really found ourselves as being really the only bastion of these kind of ideas. From what I understand, they just really yes. do not exist. Even elsewhere in the Anglo world, we know they come Correct. from there, and we know there's there are cousins, there are, there are ideological cousins there, but yeah, I don't think that the the way we think about it as Americans, the last three of us from the United States, you know, I, I don't think that there's a real analog without somebody who's borrowing heavily from American thought, just kind of American point of view. Yeah, even in the United Kingdom, I mean, like it's just not there. I mean, yes, there are you know, libertarians, anarchists, whatever there, but like, you know, this, this concept of a very popular libertarianism, kind of a formalized libertarianism, it, uh, it's, it's, it's not there. Um, but I was going to say, you know, the, the second best-selling book in American history next to the Bible is Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. Um, so for me, you know, kind of if, if I were, you know, really to start at a point that had like meaning to some degree to people today, I think it would really sort of start with her. You know, and that's where Rothbard comes in. You know, I like I, I would talk about Rand way before I talk about Rothbard. Um, and so so I'm, uh, I'm Rand was certainly more influential. Ahead. Yeah, more influential. Well, yeah. Rand was certainly more influential yeah, yeah. than uh, Rothbard. Yeah. I mean, overall. Right. Um, I, you know, I really liked I was huge into Rand when I was, um, you know, 13, 14, 15. I loved Atlas Shrugged at the time. The more I heard Rand talk, the less I liked her because it turns out like so when when you read Atlas Shrugged, you picture yourself or the little guy as um god damn it. What's the main protagonist? Um the guy that owns the steel company. Oh um, Hank Reardon? Reardon, mean, yeah. 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 So you picture yourself as like not yourself, but you picture the little guy when you're reading her thing. This guy mm -hmm. that like, you know hustles and innovates and, and builds himself up and gets there. But it turns out, no, she's just talking about like the Rockefellers and the fucking Carnegie's yeah, who are, yeah. who are bastards and, and uh, products of the state. Do you know what I mean? Like, so right. Um, I have, I have no love for the robber barons, you know, like, so yep. um, she's talking about the, the people that I've despised this whole time about somebody who's some nerd who started Microsoft in his, 
garage and but you know he's, that's not who she's talking about she's talking about titans of industry who are because they are there they deserve to be there and mm-hmm. she ignores all of the state intervention that you know allowed these robber barons to sit so pretty you know so i, sure, I that was just my departure from rand is i i much prefer the it's the it's the Rothbard and Conkin split. I much prefer the entrepreneur over the capitalist. That's yeah. like that's the way I've always been. I've just not. I, mm-hmm. I just had different terms for these things throughout my life, you know. Yeah, but I, I understand I think, that she doesn't care about. I, I I just want to really quickly just say I she I don't think she cares about that distinction. I don't think she cares about the state intervention and all that stuff that we we've talked about in the past on this podcast. It's it's like that's really not. It's that their role in society is really important in her worldview, irrespective of kind of the, you know, the state intervention, the, 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 the um, uh, rent seeking and all of that other stuff. And that's like supremely important to me, but then that's why me, between myself and, and Rand, we're pretty much in pretty different um, philosophical bents, regardless of the of of the self interest thing. I think just reducing Ayn Rand to self interest alone makes her seem really interesting. It's just when you get to like there are other philosophical differences there, where it's like there are plenty of other people that I can go to for inspiration than Ayn Rand. But I guess there's some novelty with her being a fiction writer and yeah, what I, she was her milieu back in the what was it the 70s 60s whenever she was whenever she was big you know it's it's i think that's um i think she's definitely and i think i i increasingly as i got into a lot of podcasts and stuff i really do think that she's at this point we're finally coming around to the fact that she's really overrated she's overrated you're totally right um and i don't agree with 90 percent of what she has to say um, I would say I would make the statement and then we can get started from wherever we want to start. I'm, I'm fine with anywhere. Uh, we're still trying f- to find a beginning. <laughs> well, that's part of the journey. Yeah. Yeah. Like, this, this, this is going to be a multi-part thing. Yeah. yeah I think it, I think it but, is. But what's funny is that, that, that we can define it. We don't have to like to come up with one answer. Like the way we define yeah. it is the way is the, is the way we define what our conversation is going to be. But I think this is also really yeah. important. Um, a couple things on that, in that regard, like, I was thinking when I was thinking about libertarian history, I was really thinking about like the American post-war libertarian libertarianism. I'm talking, I was thinking about at the earliest, like the sixth, well, maybe the fifties. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about, and in some respects, we were talking about the online world. So we were really talking about like post two thousand, post Y two K. You know, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it depends on some. It, it depends on which conversation we had about like what we were talking about libertarian history. When we were talking about, for example, the experience, like Brian, your experience. Um, in, in, in those circles and everything. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, where you define that is sort of where you define our the conversation. So, I mean, we don't have to have one answer, but. Um, so we can make this a two-parter or. Yeah, totally. Multiple-parter. Um, but I, but I definitely I think want to talk about going... the English Civil War because I've, I've been trying to get you to talk about the English Civil War for a while. Yes. So I think if you're going back to, if you're going back to Locke, you have to go back to the English Civil War. Because I think that's even where Locke's ideas and the um, what we call classical liberalism now that started with the the levelers and the diggers in the English Civil War. So I think so that mm, how do I shorten this? Just to this was a time 
of monarchy and aristocracy and what would later be called liberalism started, I think, with these, um, at least in the modern sense, started with these two radical groups, um, the diggers and the levelers and the diggers of the levelers. Uh, essentially, the, the things that those two groups held in common were they wanted, you know, universal suffrage, civil rights, uh, an abolition of the, the uh, aristocracy. Uh, they wanted more direct democracy. Um, they they were they both opposed uh, absentee ownership and were they 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 differed on property. That's why the diggers uh, left the levelers. Is the diggers wanted? Uh, they would probably be the forefathers of like the Jacques. They wanted or Henry George or something. They wanted the uh, they wanted land held in common, whereas the levelers sort of um mm, they actually varied quite a bit on what they thought about property um they were against sort of uh land title and and absentee ownership and ar aristocracy but they both uh the, the levelers varied a bit from sort of individual ownership or property to what what might be called like mutualism now or even like um more lockean uh individual ownership of property um, but some for, of them for wanted quick to context. So we're sure. talking like this is we're talking like mid 17th century, right? Like that English Civil War. Yes. Yeah. That yeah. English okay. Civil War. Like many, many of them actually fought in Cromwell, uh, Cromwell's uh, was it the new model army. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They fought uh, and then mutinied uh, later on. So that's 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 the time period where, we're, you know, it's. It's a period that's the the. 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 This is where, you know, sort of capitalism arises out of later on um, because the aristocracy is just dying all throughout Europe even, but more true in sort of uh, England and Scotland and they had the Scottish Enlightenment later on. Um, the people that were in these radical groups were what you would call uh, petite bourgeois. They were, um, they were not workers. They were sort of um, skilled tradesmen they were solid middle class um that's where these uh, ideas sort of come out of um and this i think led to uh the british and scottish enlightenment later on so that's where Locke comes from is like these are the uh i would say even the the forerunners of Locke, because uh, Locke is born during born during this time and um so this is this is where I, this is where I think at least the modern libertarian tradition starts is the death of the aristocracy and landed title and the yes. birth of these two different but very similar strains of radical thought that's that come out of the English Civil War, the diggers and the levelers. And you can I think you can still see their descendants all throughout the Enlightenment period and, and probably up in through American history and through till today. We've all met Georgists and communists and ANCOMs and whatever online. And then you, you sort of meet the, the, the hardcore Lockians and these are the two, these are the diggers and the levelers. Um, yeah. Some, some it's good to look at this. 
It's good to look at this in context too. When I mean, we're talking about early, what's what's called early modernity. But when we say early modernity, I mean we're talk we're, we're still talking way back. We're talking about, like you said, the death of the aristocracy, the death of the nobility, the landed titles, and everything. So we're talking about a very different world, a world where there wasn't really a working class in the sense of uh, working class under industrialization, under capitalism. I mean, there was a peasant class, and there was, you know, like like you said, a, a skilled tradesman and merchants were actually considered pretty low but they were they were gaining power anyway because they were getting rich off of commerce um regardless of what the social status might you know the people might have regarded them socially um i think this is a, i think that's a pretty important part also of actually the rise of capitalism is how the merchant class was able to go from what's traditionally regarded as a pretty low occupation and up until like people but they had they gained a whole lot of wealth and began investing it and reinvesting their wealth and so on and so forth um but yeah, it's not that you really had an urban working class. You had rural peasants, which is a very different thing. And I mean, the the, the destruction of the rural peasant life for a ton of people is 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 a huge impetus to all of these later ideas from communism to really the ideas that we're talking about here. Um, you know, that's life is pretty simple and pretty easygoing for the traditional peasant in the pre-industrial society, which we're never going back to. Um, but that transition into early capitalism and into industrial capitalism, I think, created the, the, the need for these ideologies. It created so many problems and contradictions that needed to be addressed. And uh, But yeah, we're talking about a world that's just not comparable to modern class structures and modern, the way modern economies function and the way that society is set up now. Um, and, and I guess people that were still able to live a sort of peasant life got to live a kind of easygoing, idyllic life might be tough seasonally to get the food they need, but um, there certainly wasn't the, the land enclosures or anything like that that kind of was make, made their lives difficult. But I, I think this is where you started to see, you started to see the final stages of the breakdown of the aristocracy and the nobility and um, and, and, and the rise of powerful and, and moneyed classes of people that um, didn't at all come from that uh those that lineage um and it's really kind of crazy to see the ideas that kind of come out of that to try to bring us into modernity yeah i would argue that the concept of the modern nation state comes out of this era also so it's not all well it know, comes out of the treaty of um westphalia yes um, in 16 but, whenever that was 47 or something yes i mean that's but the that's, idea of a demo democratic state that is separate from mm -hmm. any particular sovereign comes out of the enlightenment and so we yeah, just some dude yeah yes a nation state a, of separate from some dude yes the people yes. quick capital p comes out of this era also and that leads to where we are now <laughs> so i'm not there's not it's not all great things that come out of classical liberalism it's not all freedom and ideals and whatever it's it had very i would say that the hyper rational uh ideals that i wouldn't even say ideal the hyper rationality of our modern society also comes out of this enlightenment period okay and okay but i was listening to some some mises guys recently going on about this and they do claim like they claim that mises institute is like the the big heirs to classical liberalism and that'd be cool if they were actually I'm, I'm i'm increasingly partial to the guys uh, some of them i mean the ones some of them um and they uh 
in in defense of that idea, they really kind of did. They associated uh, uh, classical liberalism primarily with Locke, and then some descendants and on to Bastiat and some of the French liberals in that period in the in the 19th century. But they really did not. They used a more restrictive uh, definition of the term that, that didn't include the atheism and, and rationalism and science science focused kind of you know the the the, the, the rationalism of in secularism of the of the french revolution that culminated in the french revolution as very high point and it kind of continued on in various forms um and when you go back to Locke, you're talking about a time before that and just the idea that like rousseau and voltaire really aren't part of that same liberal tradition that you can't just lump everything in it and i've also heard and i'm totally this goes on along with the nation state point of view, the nation state um, concept that you mentioned that the enlightenment itself, which again, these guys that I was talking about, um, well, I would say didn't associate, say, with, go they ahead. Didn't associate liberalism with the enlightenment. They, they would say the enlightenment was where really, and I, I'm totally on board with this idea is where, if you think about the medieval lifestyle and point of view where God was removed from societal importance and replaced by the state. Yes, I will. Okay, so I would call, <laughs> I would lump uh, at the Enlightenment era and classical liberalism together. I don't think that I think they're intrinsically linked. And I would also say that this is the era where they sought to unseat God as the arbiter of truth, and uh, decided to replace that with rationality. So now. The old way, the old world of the aristocracy was, was the divine right of kings and those appointed by gods to rule over the rest of us because they had, well, they had a whole lot of incest is what they did, but they had the right blood blood or whatever the thing. They were descendants of those who were appointed by God, and that was the the uh, the arbiter of, of truth and uh, authority. So the Enlightenment area sought, sought to replace this with rationality. So now... We we don't believe in those set that superstitious nonsense anymore. Um, is what they were, you know, these these brilliant young minds. We don't believe in that superstitious nonsense. We're gonna rule things by you know uh, appointing people that are uh, by using our rational minds, and we're going to debate and and think about these ideas in an open forum and and choose you know it's the you know the myth of the rational voter. We're gonna have democracy, and we'll choose the best person for the job and all this kind of idealist nonsense um, that they, uh, they, they thought would be the best. I mean, read fucking Locke's second treatise on government. He goes over this over again and again and again. And so like, this is how we were going the best and most proper way to rule was we were, uh, we as a rational society, we're going to choose the people best for the job to, to rule over uh, or to, act in our on our behalf to to protect us in our defense and all this sort of thing so i mean don't ask john locke what he thought about dancing but um that was that was the that that's the classical liberal or or enlightenment milieu and i'm not the only one to make this argument that uh yeah. the enlightenment just unseated god and placed rationality as as the god head i don't know i i've heard the alternate view that mean i mean i don't know about locke in particular but it, it is weird to try to lump all of these guys together as being from the Enlightenment and, and therefore being liberals. I mean, Locke was very focused on 
you know, individual rights and natural rights against uh, state power as, as, as saying the, the individual is, is, has primacy o- over state power. And, and so many of these other oh, guys oh, come oh, out oh, enlightenment. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. I think Someone, you have a misunderstanding of Locke. So it's not that, okay. So he, at, all of the liberals, including Locke, absolutely believed in individual sort of individual sovereignty, but they just believed that the what what I would call the modern nation state is just an extension of that individual sovereignty on the aggregate. This is this is also Hegel. This is also uh, Vista. It's it's all uh, they all thought of the nation state as the, you know, it's the collective will. Right. So like we are all individually sovereign, sovereign. So that's why we have the right to vote all together and choose these people to best represent us on the aggregate that that the state was the representation of our the the people's collective will. And this is absolutely true of the classical liberals. And this goes all the way up to the Hegelians and right into the fucking Nazis. Okay, so there's a there's a clear line, (laughs) a lineage that goes all throughout. It's a it weaves in and out of the modern, the modern, the theories around the modern nation state. It all stems from this idea. Sure, I mean, I can I can see it for somebody in the 17th century to say to, to come out of uh, uh, monarchy and and aristocracy and to say that hey, maybe this democracy is it, it, this m- democracy idea is one step better versus to say that we're still basically operating in that paradigm in 2023. Oh, these are yeah. These are much more radical and liberatory ideas than what came before them. I will absolutely agree with that. Um, that, but uh, just all that line of thinking leads to where we are now. And you know, uh, Michel Foucault makes the argument that you were actually had the potential to be more fee- free under like old despotic kings than under a modern liberal democratic state mainly because the kings just didn't have the power to execute authority over your fucking day-to-day behavior they didn't care if you were gay they didn't care if you were doing drugs they didn't care about any of that because you had no power you had um you had no ability to ever be a threat to the king if you were some peasant you unless you uh, and they would put down like violent revolt but they just didn't care about your day-to-day behavior very much the the because we're all together we the people in this modern democratic nation state we all now have a vested interest in whatever it's horizontal enforcement right we all have a vested interest in what other people do with their day-to-day behavior and life and all this sort of thing because we're all together in this demos it all it, uh, these deci- decisions all affect us on the aggregate so now we have like this incentive to be really worried about what other people are fucking doing with their own lives or whatever and Foucault makes an argument that it's actually it's worse now to be you're less free under democracy just because the the ability it creates a um the, the state has more resources and it has more ability to enforce these things than say a king or an aristocrat did and they have actually have, have more uh incentives and interest in what you are doing with your life where it wasn't an issue under the aristocracy so you yeah uh, yes. Hoppe makes a makes a similar argument like Hoppe yes. has whole pamphlets on this where he talks about kind of the natural scholars and or the natural elites you would call them um 
in that, you know, in having those natural elites and he's sort of making, uh, I don't want to call it genetic, but, but he's making, you know, this, this interesting argument that there are just some people that are just meant to be in charge um, and that you would have more freedom under that. Uh, so yeah, certainly uh, even others beyond Foucault, you know, who, who I don't know too many that would want to call him libertarian, uh, have taken up this charge, you know, that you're describing sec. Yeah. I don't, I don't make, I don't come at that from a, um, hmm, what you would call like a social Darwinist position. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. uh, I don't think that there are natural elites. You, you right. might say that there are people that are, ha- are better at certain skills and i have no problem with that that's fine mm-hmm. my brother mm-hmm. knows my brother knows way more sports statistics than i will ever know he just has a, a natural knack for that he is an mm-hmm. elite in that sense yes right that's true he's better than me in that skill and there's skills that i'm better than him at and that's that's all fine i'm, I'm not saying that there aren't people that are better at certain things i yeah. just don't think that means you are like some sort yeah. of aristocrat or or a natural elite i don't believe that's true because yeah. it's it's more fluid than that you could you have the ability to change that if i wanted to i could start studying sports statistics and develop that skill i just have no interest in that and he has that natural ability so i don't think there is uh a biological or some sort of natural or uh, uh na- i don't think there's anything natural about elitism Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I hate to revert to my natural tendency of eccentrism. I just in, in regards to that thing, but like I I, I don't believe that that's true in the same way that maybe someone who really believes in social Darwinism and really believes in like elite power. Um, but I also really don't believe that the opposite is true either. I think there obviously is like a there is a higher end of the the curve for human beings it's a wide variety of people and there's also different qualities that people have in different measures well, um and i just don't think that either direction either extreme in that regard makes a whole lot of sense but that's where i am i lie i, I lie on the happy middle in between a lot of these pretty extreme ideas yeah i think but i, I think it's good that that sec that you're you're bringing you're bringing this up and you're describing because again libertarianism today and not just today has latched onto that like i said through hoppe but I mean, who even came up? Who coined the term social Darwinism? Right? Like, uh, I believe that comes from Herbert Spencer. Exactly. Right? Now, yeah. Herbert Spencer, yeah. what what's his what's his attachment to libertarianism? The term didn't well, it existed, but it wasn't used in the way we know it. Murray Rothbard is the guy who came right out and said the first libertarian was Herbert Spencer. You know, like that, like the his his books were like the first libertarian text, yeah. and he referenced them often. So you know, bringing that up, like, I mean, like even this concept that we have of social Darwinism comes from a guy who is very much appreciated, at least by Rothbard. We're not going to say all of libertarians, but at least by Rothbard, um, you know, we don't need to get into social statics and all that other crap. <laughs> Sorry, not crap, but um, yeah, we don't have to go there. Uh, I want to add in, you know, like, I mean, so, up, okay, ahead. here's the thing though. We also, yeah. so from Herbert Spencer, we get things like social darwinism yeah uh, but we also get uh he's also the one that i believe came up with the what he called the law of equal fe- freedom which is a, mm-hmm. a, a a fancy way of saying my right to swing my fist stops at your nose right mm-hmm. so this is like a I, what you might call a forerunner to like the non-aggression principle or something along those lines yep. but essentially means that i have the right to do whatever i want as long as it's not hurting you right and so we get that from Spencer. So this is like comes back to kill your fucking heroes, right? 
I just had this conversation <laughs> with somebody the other day. It's like, I don't find anybody that I agree with like a hundred percent on anything. Yeah. Like, even my own wife, we disagree yeah. all the time. So you yeah. take what you take, even with Herbert Spencer, there's stuff that Herbert Spencer that wrote that I find valuable. And then there's stuff that I'm like, Oh, that's a pile of shit. And you just take what you like. Even this goes for Rothbard, Conkin, Carl Hess, Victor, mm -hmm. Adam yeah. Smith. Mm -hmm. for sure. You take what you like and you leave whatever you don't and you keep fucking moving and you apply it to whatever you think, whatever makes sense to you and your life. And this kind of goes back to equality. Like I don't, I'm not for like some natural, uh, you know, uh, there, there's a false dichotomy that I think is presented Yes, yes. Between sort of what you might call a, a proponent egalitarian, like proponents of equality and sort of proponents of like natural aristocracy or some sort of vaguely social Darwin. And I don't agree with either of those things. Like, I don't think I mean, we might have talked about this before, but I don't think equality is like a thing that can be applied or measured in humans. Because we're so vastly fucking different from that's what makes like on my best day. That's what I value about humanity is we're so vastly different from each other and have all of our, our unique qualities and skill sets and fucking beautiful things that we can create and or, or whatever the thing, you know, on my bad days, I'm like, we need to nuke the earth from fucking space. But on the good days, I'm like, this is what's beautiful about humanity. It's yeah. like we're all very different and new unique new unique and that's fucking beautiful. It keeps it interesting. We that's how innovation works. That's how you know it, that, that's what I like about humanity. So to yeah. me, there, there is no metric that we can use to measure equality. Because to me, the the older I get, the more I sort of equate equality with like homogeneity or conformity. Mm -hmm or or something along those lines like um yeah we have to make all things the same so then we yeah. can then that's the only way you could form a metric to measure uh equality right because what do you use do you use like wealth well some people don't fucking value wealth so right. you're gonna put your values and measure you know other people's lives against your own values or you know what do you what are we even talking about in terms of equality here like yeah voting rights under the law okay sure but uh, right. i don't believe there should be law but if there is law sure we should probably have equality under it that's yeah. fine but I, it's not something i'm going to strive for i don't want there to be law <laughs> do you know what i mean so yeah like, no what right are we on. even talking about no and i'm, I'm with you 100 percent, and i think you know, I mean, you're getting into classic, this is classic Harrison Bergeron, right? Classic Kurt Vonnegut. Um, and part of the problem is, and, and, and I, I, you know, there, there's some things I don't believe in like a, a, a new world, like a singular new world order that's out there. I think there's a lot of groups trying to do a lot of things, a lot engaging in a lot of behavioral science. Uh, I think the use of the word equality is one of those instances. Um, that word, much like Ayn Rand would say, get rid of the word we, I think the word equality, now not the word equals, we have to use that in math, but the word equality needs to die. Uh, in the Enlightenment, of course, they came up with the term egalitarianism. That is far more specific and is exactly what you're talking about, Sec. Meaning that if there are some kind of norms, then those norms apply, or norms uh, or, or mores, also I'll use the word mores. If there are some kind of mores, 
that exist, then they apply uh, the same to everybody, meaning everybody has the same opportunity, not the same results, but the same opportunity. And that equality should not even be used to describe that. But it is today. And I think that's a problem because people get confused. They think equality means I should be able to do that too. Or, you know, or I, you know, if, if this person can, can jump 20 feet, I should, society should make it so that I can jump 20 feet or he can only jump as high as I can. Right. Like, uh, cause I can only jump one foot, whatever that happens to be. So I think using the term egalitarianism would be very helpful in that. Uh, and I'm bothered that that term's not used today because that would eliminate this problem, which you're accurately describing is going on, especially online sec, you know, where people are like, oh, we should all be equal, meaning we should all have $100. Like, no, 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 no. Egalitarianism doesn't say that. Egalitarianism just says, well, we should have the opportunity to make it, but it doesn't mean we're all going to have $100, you know, whatever that is. Yeah, I mean, this is, this could be, a, this honestly could have, probably should have been a, like its own topic. I have to think about this all the time. And I, mm-hmm. I, I don't want to say 100% agree with you in this, but I definitely agree with both of your notions. I think we're all really on the same page here. Um, of course, you know, I will say like the big issue with um, there's a concept of luck egalitarianism that kind of fixes this, but like the big issue with the egalitarian equality of opportunity is of course, like it would take vast amount of, it would take in a complete totalitarian state that controls every single resource and action that people take to actually give people real you know, true equality of opportunity. If you took, if you took that even close to literally. Right. right. Um, but you know that, but all things being aside, you can mean something by that. This may be workable. It could be a principle. I, I, I totally, I'm totally with you on that. Um, and likewise, uh, since, I mean, like I said, you guys pretty much covered a lot of bases that I think about, about these, these huge dichotomies, this, this, these false dichotomies in viewpoints where I tend not to fall or I fall somewhere in the middle where I'm just not, I'm in a neutral position because it's just not a, it's not a, it's not a dichotomy through which I, it's not, the lens of that dichotomy isn't a lens through which I view the world. Like this whole idea, and this is very along the same lines, this idea of a very Nietzschean kind of, you know, will, will to power, you know, strength, strength and will and, and domination versus a, this very, just to put it in Nietzschean terms, because I don't really have another, uh, a way to put this, but um, in addition to egalitarianism, a very slave morality driven kind of very uh, slave morality driven ethic, which, you know, values inverting hierarchies and um, the, it values the minor, the, the racial minority, the disabled, the, you know, on and on and on the poor over the rich and trying to invert hierarchies and trying to really just basically do the opposite of the, the first one um and it's just like uh, that's not the world doesn't work where you sort of assign i mean those that just system of ethics just doesn't mean anything to me it, it's so foreign to the way i think and the way i think the world actually functions and you just kind of run your life along the lines of basically you know trying to basically put the weak and oppressed and disabled and ugly above the the strong and the, the the beautiful and the well rich or vice versa it's just it seems so silly to me but i think a lot of people seem to actually take that philosophy to heart and actually i've been a lot of just a lot of political ideas and philosophies that like center those ideas which is again silly yeah. and is so far into i think all of our points of views so i yes this is sort of a little 
side tangent, but I think mm-hmm. this is this is also very um, linked to classical liberal liberal ideas. The the concept of equality, universal suffrage, uh, prop, popular sovereignty. To, uh, excuse me, uh, equality. All all of these things are are very uh, you know classical liberal ideals, which later you know libertarianism draws from um and so many people who create uh you know critique you know democracy or um i think this is the point i was trying to make earlier critique people who critique democracy or equality are often often coming at it from like a pro uh aristocratic or elitist Mm -hmm. position and i don't I don't know what the third thing this is the again we come back to the limitation of language. I don't know what the third thing could be called because I am I'm neither of those things. I'm neither pro the ideal of equality and I'm I'm not also not a fan of elitism and aristocracy uh either. Yeah. Uh, I, is you know is egoism the third thing? Do you know what I mean? Oh, uh, I, I, yeah, Everyone can be their unique self and, and, and let's, uh, you know, forget about these lofty ideals and, um, go from I mean, there. There's two but, ways to view of that. There's, there's, you might come up with a third thing that's a, a contained philosophy or like the world basically works in the middle between those things. Or, you know what I mean? The world doesn't really work on the, according to these extremes. I mean, it wouldn't, it wouldn't function. I mean, these, these are people that are taking these f- philosophies and taking them to like their logical extremes. The world wouldn't exist. The world, like, 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 basically a Rothbardian view, like, like, uh, tr- egalitarianism, like true egalitarianism, would be a, f- a front to nature. And so would, you know, obviously being someone who considers his philosophy the true classical liberalism, like uh, so would an uh, a tr- uh, absolute absolutist, um, an absolutist inequality. So I don't know if I'm, what I'm describing is like a center center position between these two positions either because I would like to see sort of both of these concepts destroyed. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to find the sort of the happy medium between these concepts. I want, yeah, you know, I want uh, what Deleuze, um, Deleuze would call, um, God damn it, not symbiosis. Um, Rhizomatic. I don't want. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, I don't want. I don't want. I don't want equality or egalitarianism, and I don't want natural aristocracy. I want something more distributed, or rhizomatic. Or I think. Yeah, I think the union of ego is is the answer. Like, there you go. That's yeah. Yeah. That anytime somebody asks me, you know, all right, so then what does association look like? It's like, well, that's what it looks like. Union of egoists, you know. You come together and you come together for as long as your goals align. And as soon as they don't align, you know, you, you go your separate ways. Um, and, you know, I, I understand why some people kind of bristle at that because, you know, part of that is that you just walk away, you know, and there may not be consequences to that when perhaps some people in their concepts of justice think that there should be. But I do think that that's, that's, that's the only answer I've heard that makes sense for humanity as a social species is you know, is ultimately the union of egoists. What do you got, Zach? No, yeah, I, I agree with you. Tem- temporary alliance is, yeah, yeah, um, but, um, shit, I, my brain is shitting the bed all of a sudden. I need more coffee or something, but, yeah. <laughs> um, so, um, 
is this is this sufficient i guess in describing a third position between or uh, apart from this uh, the dichotomy of um aristocracy and equality um i think okay i think what you say is correct but possibly insufficient and maybe we need to somehow expand on that more but there isn't words to describe what i'm what i what sure. needs, what um what is uh more suitable for humans you know like yes a union of egoists is a, a great what i mean is a union of egoists as a sort of social organizational tool is very valuable but i don't know that this also describes the uh the state of being that is a lack of this dichotomy between equality and aristocracy. Do you see what I mean? I yeah. Think there needs to be more expansion or terminology that would better describe this position. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, going back to, you, you know, the um, serving your unique, everybody should serve their new unique and, equality or uh you know aristocracy be damned i mean maybe we're going back to egoism again you know but um i think there is there there that hasn't been explored enough i don't know yeah rather than i point i point to a specific philosophy or like synthesizing one i would just say basically like instead of the idea that yeah there's a mix there's a mix of different extremes i guess is almost like it's almost tautological to say there's a mix of different extremes because what are extremes they're they're two opposite ends of some kind of spectrum yeah but I, i'm really not advocating maybe i say tongue in tongue in cheeks that i'm i'm the centrist in this position but i really do see it as like i don't recognize the spectrum i don't recognize the spectrum i'm not on the spectrum and i'm not just saying i'm not on the political spectrum no the political spectrums are dumb it's it's because political opinion opinions are multi multi varied or whatever the multi there's multiple points that different people believe ideologically what i'm saying is like i don't really fall on a spectrum of like you know basically like nietzschean ethics or or, or, or slave morality or whatever as i described it or or, the, or you know absolute equality or, or, or elitism i just think that's not the world doesn't work where you fall on a spectrum in there like that's not an organic world you can't possibly have anything close to the either two extreme because just the world doesn't function correctly that way well i want to i want to take a, a little bit i think the english civil war is a really interesting place to start and i want to take a little bit a very small historical ride just a few hundred years before that Okay, and, and and end up there though. Get at why did this thing happen? You know, like what was going on in Europe at the time that this was even possible to happen? Um, and I think it will help color perhaps what we're trying to come to here uh, because it will end up in the Enlightenment. Um, so for me, you know, the concept and like bringing up, like I think Penguin actually, the more, the more we're, we've been talking, the more I'm thinking, yeah, Penguin's right. Start with John Locke, right? Now, John Locke is most famous, of course, for his statement. I mean, and like you said, sec, you know, coming out of the second trees of government, you know, life, liberty, property, right? And I think most, a lot of libertarians would probably hold that as kind of a defining credo, especially the property part, because they would think that that actually colors the previous two, life and liberty. So property, I would argue that concept, Okay, first off, you know, before we had any of these notions of what was being fought for in the English Civil War, say like democracy away from 
aristocracy. Okay, aristocracy, I, you know, this isn't, again, we're talking in very broad strokes. So there's nuance in all of this that we're not going to be able to get to because I want to be kind of brief with this. All right. But aristocracy ultimately comes out of the idea that this human being who's in charge, the emperor, the king, the queen, whatever, is the representative for God upon planet Earth. Now, that's a very key point, I think, to get into or, or to, to bring up. We don't have to dive on it much, but I mean, just, just to bring up. So the aristocracy is what's running things. The monarchy, whatever you want to call it, is what's running things for arguably thousands of years. And what you, what I think, and what really changed, what, what put an end to, or at least in the human mind, what put an end to the idea of the aristocracy was the Black Plague, at least in Europe. Okay, this isn't even getting into Chinese history or anything like that, whole other ballgame. But in Europe, it comes down to, for me, it comes down to the Black Plague. Now that happened, again, we're talking English Civil, English Civil War, 17th century. Black Plague happens in the 15th century. There was a plague before that too, but let's stick with this one. And so many millions of people in Europe die from this. They are just gone. And suddenly you have all these empty houses. You have all this shit all over the place that nobody is alive to lay claim to other than the people that are actually alive, which are very few. And out of this, I think, is where, you know, now, like you rightly brought up, the English Civil War is when the concept of title and a lot of all this landed title would, would become a bigger deal. Um, I think that the Black Plague is when suddenly the, the normies, the populace, okay, right, the people under the aristocracy, suddenly had access to tremendous wealth just by default of the fact that their neighbor died. You know, suddenly it was like, well, who owns this? Well, I might as well. I'm right here, you know, and 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 that's that's how that started occurring. So I think that the Lockean concept of property really starts as in property that could be owned by not the king. It's not the king's deer really starts in Europe with the Black Plague when suddenly people realized, hey, I actually I might as well own this because I'm the only person that can protect it or I'm the only I'm the closest person, whatever it ends up happening to be. And I mean, the aristocracy at the time can't possibly own it all like or do anything about it all. Kind of like you're talking about how you're better off under the aristocracy because the, the central point of power is so far away, you can't really do anything about it. Well, that's what was going on during the Black Plague. So this, I think, directly leads to eventually you end up with the Dutch Golden Age during the Dutch Republic, right? East India Company, all of this stuff getting into, um, you know, we're going and, and how does this happen? You know, it happens over a period of a couple hundred years. Civilization starts like these riches are so accessible. The Dutch Republic happens and it's this area of tremendous freedom. And it's this tremendous freedom because there was that lack of power part of it even being from the enforcement of the lack of people underneath the aristocracy to take care of everything. Okay. So what ends up happening is you get around, you know, when you get to the, uh, to the 17th century, okay. You know, 300 years or so after the black plague, the population starts to normalize, normalize in that it starts to reach the levels that it was previous to the black plague. But now people are used to not the aristocracy everybody now they're used to owning property they're used to having a lot right they're used to having riches and of course this gets on its best display like i said in the dutch republic at the time during the dutch golden age and i think a lot of europe because i mean you have the franco-dutch war you have a lot of wars the 80 years war you have a lot of wars that are going on at this time and 
I, I don't want to get into like a mess of, you know, well, okay, you can only fight so many wars on so many fronts. And that's partly why some of these things happened. I mean, that's certainly a historical adjunct to get into, but we don't have to hear. But ultimately, the I think what you had was a lot of countries in Europe looking at the Dutch Republic, seeing the tremendous freedom that people had there. And they did. They really did. Uh, it, it was a remarkable time. Even women, you know, had this amazing egalitarianism. And it's all coming out of this enlightenment thinking like we're talking about. Not to say there aren't dark elements of the Enlightenment, like we've mentioned, but it's coming out of this Enlightenment thinking. And I think a lot of countries were suddenly like, oh, wait, we want to do what the Dutch are doing. We want to, this is, this should be like the Netherlands. Let's go. You know, and uh, I could believe that that was very responsible for uh, part of the attitudes happening in the English Civil War. In that, and, and it all, to me, it all stems from the Black Plague, where suddenly the normies, the everyday person, had this notion, holy shit, I can own stuff, and the king doesn't, you know, and, 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 that's, and that's where, you know, Locke comes in with life, liberty, property at that point. So that's my, my quick jaunt through history, going just a little bit back, just to explain how did this concept of Lockean property come even to existence, how, why wasn't it there before, and it wasn't there before because the everyday person never thought they could have had it until most of the people died in Europe. But what do you got, Penguin? Uh, yeah, I think Sec is having some computer difficulties, but... Um, oh, okay. Yeah, well, I was thinking, yeah, just so he might be out for a second. But um, I'm, yeah, I kind of agree, and it kind of goes back to um, what I was saying about the uh, rise of, well, I didn't use the term, but like the, the, the original bourgeois class, which I mean, I kind of just used the term historically to describe, like basically... Sure. Uh, the rise and station of the merchant merchant class or the bourgeois class and not just strictly merchants i mean it's, it's pretty similar you get people that are accumulating wealth and generating wealth by investing their existing wealth that they've previously generated in tremendous amounts of wealth yet they're not high-born people they're not nobility they're not landed it's a new right. type of 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 typically you know well off you know well off well you know endowed with uh, a big house and, and very large bank account city dweller in the a, a burger or a bourgeois or a whatever the other term is a a powerful non-landed man and then and they were called that because they were of the cities um oh there goes that all right uh they were of the cities and they and the landed Gentry were basically of the of the countryside because they had lots of land, which was like arable land farm, and then allowed the peasants to farm it. So that's basically the rise of proto-capitalism. But yeah, I think the idea of like non-landed non-landed folks um, accumulating all this wealth is pretty key. I never really made a connection with the Black Plague or that whole narrative there. I think that could very well have a lot to do with it. Yeah, I, I think most countries were terrified, especially at that time. Um, and that would have been right around, because that would have been into the mid-17th century um, when, you know, the English Civil War happened. Um, I think a lot of Europe was deathly jealous of what was happening in the Dutch Republic, and they, they wanted a piece of that pie. And they rightly recognized it through the liberalism, the classical liberalism of the time or the liberalism of the time of, of, of the geography of, you know, the Dutch Republic itself, um, you know, in, in that couple hundred year time frame. So, uh, yeah, 
yeah, I, I think this this ultimately points to, you know, I think we have a great definition of libertarianism, but I think the the heart of libertarianism comes down to uh, private property. And that's, you know, that's why, again, just to bring it full circle, why Locke is such a great place, uh, you know, to, to, to really start. And I, I think we've kind of hit it and we're, we're describing property a bit. Sec, what do you got? How terrible do I sound right now? Uh, not bad, not bad. I'm on my phone. My computer just crashed or something. Oh, that's all right. Phone, phones uh, actually have great microphones, so you're fine. Okay, let me see. That bad. Yeah, all of a sudden, um, my computer just made. I've never seen it do this, but the screen went black, and it made kind of um, almost like a loading circle in the center of it. I yeah. could still hear you guys, but I couldn't do anything about my microphone. And then, uh, I, then I, I finally had, I tried to do something, but I finally had to shut it off. So we're back to now. I just brought, I just brought up the link on my phone so I could, right on. you know, finish this out with you guys, but I yeah, can still well, mostly hear what you guys are saying though. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, let's I always do, remember that, or go ahead, go ahead. Sec. I, no, I do agree that probably the black plague and just less, um, population and just a changing of the the order of things um that was because of the black plague pr probably laid the um the path or at least the incentives for uh the enlightenment later on and classical liberalism even and uh um later on you know capitalism and all of these things just because uh, you know when you have that many people dying it's just going to change social dynamics and yes just like less people um vying for the same amount of resources is going to create less scarcity in some sense um so i, I do kind of agree with your thesis there um but um i think lock is an obvious start but i would even uh going back um i would even start where Locke kind of, you know, the English, English, this is all the same time period. So the English Civil War going into Locke, this is like the um, beginning of at least these ideals. But I do agree that the 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 plague actually set the stage for all that to come up later on. Yeah. And, and again, you know, I would reiterate, I think the Dutch Republic at the time, like really showed everybody that if you have this more laissez-faire attitude, you know, look at the tremendous wealth and advancement that can happen, you know, within your, within your country. And, um, I mean, the monarchies didn't want to let go, but the people couldn't help but notice, you know? Yeah. I mean, my understanding of this is, um, and again, I, I really do try to like the, one of the good thing is I am, one of the things I'm really good at in history is actually kind of looking at the broad context instead of the very specifics. I'm not like, you know, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not walking on encyclopedia, but I try to look at what, the broad context of like what life was at a certain time period um but the idea that these people came around the aristocratic aristocrats the nobility the, the landed the people of landed titles they were very they were necessarily you know very conservative in, in the basic sense of the word and of course the, the, the uh you know the religious clergy which was a distinct class 
at the time were necessarily very conservative just in terms of like society you know because they wanted to conserve their power they didn't want i mean the idea of like innovation for example the word innovation is is like a nasty word for in both in a religious context and in just in, in the general social context you didn't know that's not what you wanted to do but a certain class of people that were non-landed people that that gained their wealth not through inheritance and not through taxing the the peasantry or whatever but and and not through like the king's fiat or whatever you know the sovereign allows you to extract this much by your name by your noble birth but a, a class of people that that gain their wealth through ingenuity and and, and and you know good decision making like i said accumulating the wealth reinvesting the wealth to make improved means to accumulate more wealth and just through in, innovation, ingenuity, um, uh, planning and long-term thinking, stuff like that, uh, you know, using better accounting methods and, and, and so on and so forth and coming up with early economic ideas to kind of explain these things and transmit these ideas. So that class of people got wealth, therefore they got de facto power, and mm-hmm. they just asked the local rulers that were of by by uh, noble birth they just said hey exempt us from some of these rules and some laws and some of these social strictures um let us do our own thing separate these were the early bourgeois like i was saying let us go do our own thing and give us as much freedom as you can and they generated so much tremendous amounts of wealth and innovation and and, and technology and stuff like that that it like you said, it, it showed the world. I think this happened in like the Dutch. I think this happened with some in some places with the Italians or not a hundred percent sure. Uh, I think it happened quite all over Europe to some extent that sure. they were able to create so much wealth for their the city and so much um, new technologies and in and, 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 and social innovation and everything that it showed that this is a new this new way of thinking. And not just being conservative, basically, basically trying to just preserve the hierarchies, preserve the orders, not rock the boat, could improve everybody's lives so much, including the you know the rulers that, of course, take a cut. Yeah, you know, okay, I want to bring in, and this is another point I wanted to get to as well, um, and I, and I want to bring this in quickly um, because I think this is another essential element of libertarianism, and that is uh, that you can solve anything through logical argumentation. Okay, now that is in itself a key concept, would become a key concept of the Enlightenment. Now, so I want to touch on a little bit on the history of the Enlightenment, because we were doing that earlier as well. History in the sense of its motivations. And that is, the Enlightenment started not because they wanted to get rid of God out of everyday life. It's because they wanted to understand God better. That was the, that was the beginnings. That was the original mission, you could argue of the Enlightenment scientists, from Newton to Whiston to take your pick, whoever, you know, or Thomas Knight, whoever you want to pull out, okay? Um, However, what ends up happening, arguably, I mean, and and people can argue, especially when you're looking at, say, the works of Newton and Whiston, but what ends up happening is the Enlightenment thinkers realize, actually, we don't need God, and perhaps there is no God. You know, or if he is, he's the blind watchmaker, you know, he's the absentee landlord, he's this and that, right? So, you know, the Enlightenment didn't start off with this quote-unquote evil mission of getting rid of God, but it did end off with getting rid of God. Now, Sec was absolutely accurate in saying earlier 
that what did they do? They replaced it with reason. Reason is that logical argumentation. Okay. Um, and this gets, for me, this is, it is a key part of libertarianism. Um, it's also why libertarianism has never, ever, anywhere, and I say this as somebody who lives in New Hampshire and has for over a decade, where libertarianism is, is an absolute hot, it's a, it's a hot spot, maybe even the hottest spot in the world for libertarianism. Okay, has ne libertarianism has never, ever, ever gained purchase. It has never taken over an area. It has never become the central tenant of an area. It has never become, or the central philosophy of an area. It never has. And the reason that I think that is, and we're kind of carted before the horse here, but the reason I think that is, is because it does, even though there are a lot of libertarians, including at the Mises Institute, who believe in a God, okay, um, it's never, it's never taken over because it refuses to recognize that aspect of the human condition that is not, it's not possible to logically argument. It's not, language fails. They refuse to accept though, that language fails. And this, you know, this gets into, cause yes, they wanted to, they wanted to replace, you know, reason with the monarchy uh, or yeah, sorry, got that backwards. Replace the monarchy with reason. They wanted to replace God with reason. You know, and and ultimately you're replacing the monarchy, you're replacing God. Because again, what is the monarchy? The monarchy is that representative of God upon the earth. Okay. So, you know, this this occurs, and and it's so funny because really the history of libertarianism is a bunch of thinkers trying to come up with better logical arguments over centuries. Of course, they're always failing, but they're trying all the time. What do you got, Zach? Yeah, you just you the way you, you were just just describing the, you know, the replacement of um, religion with rationality is, it's it's almost like um, they're attempting to measure or logically describe God, right? Um, it's it's the same kind of thing of like trying to measure and logically describe a breeze on a sunny day you know what i mean it's like um you know i'm, I'm not a believer in a god but it just newton's a prime example of like just trying to measure spirituality it, it using like mathematics and logical arguments and i i like a lot from newton especially his weird um alchemist stuff but He's uh, sort of a prime example of that, of just trying to, we're going to measure and record this and logically describe the spiritual realm, right? When it's it's the hubris of sort of uh, humanity, once again, where it's like, this might not be, like you just said, there might not be words to even describe this. It might not be something that we can obtain through logic and reason. Um you know, it might be just a fucking feeling, you know, like what is, what is all of this? What is reality? It might be just, uh, there might not be words to describe this because, um, I, I don't know. It's not describable. It's, it's something you sense and feel. Um, so yeah, it's ineffable. Yeah. Yes. Um, so I, I think that's once again, we're, we're taking shits at, you know, logic and reason, but it has its place, but it needs to stay in its place. And it's not the, the end all be all. And I think that is the worst thing to come out of the enlightenment is uh, the idea that we can apply, you know, 
rationalism to literally everything. Um, right. And the, here we here we are today, and that, and and I think the what the, a lot of people might call the new atheists are, you know, a prime example of of just that. And um, but I I don't I just I think libertarian modern libertarianism or current libertarianism um, falls and in, falls into that same trap where they try to um, logic and reason their way through literally everything. And it, and it's just, it's not, I think that's why part of the reason why libertarianism isn't more popular because, um, for most things, nobody cares about your long winded logical argument about why your theory is logically correct and sound. Um, you know, they just, they, people, that's not how most people make their decisions. They don't make it on their decisions on pure logic. And I don't think they should either. Uh, you know, there's right. lots of things that go into your decision-making aside from logic. You know, it's emotion, it's a feeling, it's, I like the way this smells or tastes. There's a, uh, you know, just there's, you you have a certain way of doing things. Um, that that's works for you and you don't even know why, you know, your gut yeah. just tells you this thing and maybe you're processing information on a subconscious level and you don't even realize it. You know, it's, there's way more to hu the human condition than just logic and reason. Yeah. And yeah, and I, I like, wanna, um, go ahead. Penguin. I, I like, um, empiricism in, in reason a lot. And, um, cause I like that we can have, you know, planes and trains and automobiles and stuff like that, but you know, that, that can coexist with, uh, more co coexist with God, with religion and also with the more nuanced view of the world. It's just not based on like pure logic and reason. Yeah. It only goes so far, you know, it's like, it's like classical mechanics and quantum mechanics, right? Okay. Classical, classical mechanics can land us on the moon. Awesome. Great. That's very useful. But it doesn't explain quantum mechanics and quantum mechanics calls bullshit on some of it, but that doesn't mean it's not useful. And that's the thing, you know, empiricism, the scientific method, all these things, they can be incredibly useful, but they have limits. And that's what we forget. And also we are not logical beings, you know, just to prove sex point. And I think this could play into, I, I got to wrap things up. Um, but I think this could play into part two or part three <laughs> in, in this history of libertarianism, because I think one of the most important technologies for libertarianism was Facebook. Um, and, Facebook itself, you know, calls bullshit on the whole, not on libertarianism, but just on this idea that we're logical beings, because you could explain it. You could, you could get all the evidence in the world, Cambridge Analytica, behavioral experiments that caused suicides for Facebook users. You could explain over the past 10 years, you could explain, you can give every reason why no one should ever use Facebook, but they still used Facebook so much. You know, I mean, now it's kind of becoming passe, but at the time people were still using Facebook. Why were they using Facebook? This isn't my words. This is the words of multiple sociologists as well as technologists who this is, this is what they said. Not what I'm saying. This is what they said. Okay. But I agree with them. Most people used Facebook because they thought it could get them laid by somebody nearby. Yeah. That's why they used Facebook. That's why they wouldn't get off of it. Didn't matter what art, what logical arguments you had. Holy shit, you should never trust this company. Mark Zuckerberg's a piece of shit. Blah, 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 blah. Go down the list of it. Okay. It didn't matter. Why? Because I could get laid. And so yeah. Or just and, and, I like it right. and it feels good. You know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah, sure. Or, yeah, I mean, it or it doesn't even memes, need to be any more complex than that. Yeah. Yeah. Like cat memes is a completely valid reason to do anything. 
<laughs> but it's not logical, right? That's right. It's not right. logical exactly. at all. But that's totally valid. And that's where, in my opinion, libertarianism falls apart because it says no, there has to be a quantifiable logical explanation. But there's not. And 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 you can or it for some things, for many things, actually, there's not. And right. or why, you know, the, a logical argumentation is only part of it. Or it's yeah. sort of it's more often like I find this like I'll have a sort of an instinctual feeling about a thing. And I know this is a big no, no among libertarians, but I will have like an like, um, I don't know. I just don't like fucking war or the, I don't like seeing the little guy trampled, but now, uh, you know, as years go on, I still don't like these things, but I have like a dozen logical arguments to support why, my ideas and first gut instincts were correct. You know what I mean? But it still stems from this sort of just visceral reaction to certain things. And then later I developed lots of logical arguments as to why to sort of justify these things, but it, it sort of comes from the gut first. So like, e even though logic was an important part of that, you know, process, it still starts from like, just a general feeling about certain things like a general sense of like injustice or whatever, whatever that, that feeling is. And, uh, you know, later on you sort of develop the, and expand these ideas logically, but I don't know if anybody else, I think I have a funny feeling that's, that's how most people work. You know, they, they get a, a vague sense about how they feel about things and then they find, uh, you know, like a breakdown or, or logical arguments or, or reasons why they are doing these things. But the first instinct was always like a very a gut reaction. It was an emotional oh, yeah, for sure. or something. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. So, all right. Well, yeah, we should. Yeah. Uh, okay. Listen, we did two hours and we barely like we got the, the <laughs> origins and like a basic working definition of libertarianism. So this yeah. might be yeah. several, several episodes, but. Um, you got to bounce it. Anyway. I yeah. think we laid a great framework. This was a great framework for a future conversation on <laughs> getting to later modern <laughs> or later early early modern history of libertarianism. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But I think something else that we might need to throw in here for maybe next time is free will versus determinism. Um, I think that. Uh, might shape the way people think about these concepts. Um, so maybe we should delve into that a little bit more. Um, maybe next time, but all right. Um, anything else anybody wants to add? I know everybody's got to go, but. Yeah, I'll, I'll just say very quickly that, you know, I know there's a lot of libertarians and people who I greatly respect, um, you know, who make the claim that the enlightenment was never finished. It, it hadn't been finished yet. And so now libertarianism is here to finish it. Um, I would I would push back against that. But next time, maybe we can explore more of what that uh, continuance in, say, the 20th century, perhaps, or even earlier, uh, you know, of the enlightenment. And, and, and it's because I, I think we attached it pretty well to libertarianism. Anyway, that's all I've got. The continuance yeah, of I, the Enlightenment, I say the pinnacle of it was Nazi Germany. Ah, whoa. Well, there, there, there you go. We're, we're going to get into that. <laughs> yeah. I don't think there's any one right theory about these things, but there's some, uh, yeah. you know, uh, I, I, some of these views, like, like like you just said, or like what I was saying about, you know, basically the what what is and isn't part of the Enlightenment and what, um, 
replacing basically replacing God with the state and everything. I think that's a really cool narrative. And uh, yeah. that, that was a good zinger too. But I think these are really good narratives that we can use, and they're pretty. Some of some of, you can come up with some pretty powerful statements out of them. And uh, there's no really right or wrong answer if you, as long as you know enough of the history to be, you know, quoting it accurately. Right. 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 Absolutely. All right. Well, um, Brian, thanks for coming on, dude. Always a pleasure. Um, everybody listening, be excellent to each other. Brian, you want to plug anything you got coming up or stuff? Just hit uh, SovereignTech.com and uh, lots of good stuff coming on the, coming down the pike. All right. Dope. All right. You guys, peace. Be good. Peace. Peace. All right, ciao.